This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. By the way, Election Day. Today is the day. Get out to the polls. Get uh, get your vote in. And um, hopefully you'll exercise a little agency. Somebody will replace Jason Chaffetz. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe possibly the Mayor Curtis of, is it Provo? Provo, Provo mm-hmm. Mayor Curtis. That's in uh, the Utah, one of the Utah congressional districts. Um, the governor of Virginia is up for play as well. That is a, supposedly a really, um, I don't know, I guess a, a, a bellwether state. Is that what they're calling it? A bellwether election? Because that'll see how people feel about Donald Trump. It's a big, it's a big election there. New Jersey's looking to to go after or get a new governor. New Jersey, New Jersey, um, mayor of New York City is on the line. A lot of elections around the country, but make sure you get in there today and uh, and cast your cast your vote. Will you be voting? I've already voted. <gasps> yeah, really? Yeah. Can you hear Terry's here? Terry showed yeah, up. The clanking and clankety clank. He's got to unpack his <laughs> lunch. He's opening a can of uh, anchovies. Nice Lunchables, by the mm. way. He, I love the little Reese's peanut butter cup that comes with those. Oh, aren't those great? Yeah. It, it, you know, the great thing about elections now is you just you can mail it in. So I voted about a month ago, it feels like. Hmm. So great. Is that different from phoning it in? Yeah, phoning it in doesn't work. Really? When somebody runs for office and they phone it in, does they, it work? No, they, no, it doesn't. They need to be back there more. That's why Jason Chaffetz is quitting. Maybe they should try mailing it in. He's tired of living in a cot. He quit months ago. Yeah. That's why he's – well, he's still quitting. I think you fully finished he the needs, process of no, quitting. He has nothing quitting. to do. He's still on Fox quit News. Left. Well, I mean he's doing that because – No, that's what I'm talking about. Do you think he'll be out of office for a while and realize maybe he doesn't want to spend as much time with his family and try to get back in? No way. <laughs> Families are awesome. No, well, I, I think well, so, too. If you think about it, his family lives in the west side of the country, and he's on the east side of the country. So what is he doing? Not being with his family like he said he was going to be. <clears throat> Liar! For now. Eventually, once he's the main anchor at Fox News. No, he's going to run for office again because he doesn't really want to spend time with his family. Oh, that is such a dirt. What that, he's going to do? Yo, I told you. You can't say Terry's that. Terry's on the same page. He, That's what he's doing. He want, of course he wants to spend time with his family. Well, he also said he can't look at his daughters in the face and then went against that too, so... But it takes time to transition. A well, that, I think like that's a like I think that's a nearsightedness problem that he has. That oh, he can't look them in the face. Just saying, there's a track record here. No, you. Got, hey, by the way, the U.S. Air Force blew it. Blew it. And uh, the military failed to report the gunman. The gunman that went and shot uh, twenty or killed twenty six people in Texas had uh, already been charged, I guess, by the Air Force with a domestic, and you can't uh, go get a gun if you have a domestic violence charge. Mm. And, but it's got to be reported, or none of this reporting works, right? So we have laws on the books, but the laws have to be obeyed for safety to uh, to exist. But again, uh, complicated issue. 
complicated issue. So the tragedy, at least we're understanding a little bit more what happened in Texas. More and more hero stories coming out of there as well, as well as just more of the human side of the, uh, the entire equation. So we'll get to all of that. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country we should be paying attention to? The Texas shooter suffered three gunshot wounds, according to an official with the Texas Department of Public Safety. Two of the wounds were inflicted by a bystander, one by the shooter himself. The self-inflicted wound was fatal. First Baptist Church neighbor Stephen Williford said he heard the commotion next door where the uh, 26 people were died, 20 were injured. Wilford confronted the shooter and the two exchanged fire. Wilford and another man chased the shooter in a vehicle who apparently killed himself in the car several miles away. So that's how the whole thing mm. went down, I guess. Crazy. They're trying to figure out why he did it. They know why he, where he got the guns. The Air Force is figuring out. Their Air Force is showing they, they said they dropped the ball and didn't get the information. Now they're going they're going back to go through all their records to make Find sure there's nobody happened. else out there oh, boy. that they've dropped the ball and let somebody else slip through the system. That's a good idea. Also, so. mm. uh, a landscaping dispute with a neighbor led to the physical altercation and broken ribs of Senator Ron, uh, Rand Paul last week. Neighbors told the New York Times that Paul and a neighbor, Renee Boucher, had uh, disagreed over lawn clippings. Oh, boy. Or uh, Paul's composting habits, either way. Paul was reportedly stepping off a riding lawnmower when the neighbor tackled him Friday. Paul had been wearing earmuffs and did not hear the neighbor approach. Uh, the lawyer for the neighbor said Monday that the dispute between the two men was over a matter that most people would regard as trivial. Paul suffered five rib fractures from the incident. His office uh, said, let's see, the neighbor's attorney added that the alleged assault had absolutely nothing to do with either with either's politics or political agendas. Uh, Jeremy Hodges, a spokesperson for the Kentucky State Police, said prosecutors are considering upgrading the charge to fourth-degree assault. Mm. Uh, there has to you know, there's some... Uh, factor of the he's a senator and you attack mm-hmm. him. There's some, you know, legalities that go with that. The the lawyer for the neighbors trying to downplay it is that they're neighbors. This has nothing to do with him We're being just, a senator. Yeah, it's just two neighbors. Well, this lawn is the, even a better lesson for the rest of us. So he wasn't attacking a senator. He was attacking a neighbor. Yeah, that's what they're trying to <laughs> look. Look at the point of view of the neighbor. That's like, a, well, okay. You just don't attack your neighbor over. I mean, that's just. He came up from behind him and tackled him. Yeah, when he's wearing ear protection because he was riding a lawnmower. So whatever. It, wow. It's it's a dumb neighbor dispute that turned into. Something I wonder if more. it's on YouTube. Because no, it would probably be, not. Well, crazy neighbor stories, right? It, that would it, be a really big YouTube hit. It'd be great if it was. Well, um, sadly, well, no, it'd be great for me because I could watch something ridiculous. Yeah. There you go. A powerful storm, at least nine confirmed tornadoes tore roofs off factories, ripped away storefronts, destroyed homes across Indiana, Ohio, and into Pennsylvania, the AP reports. Scuba divers found the bodies of two men inside a home's flooded basement. They were seeking shelter Sunday during the tornado in Erie, Pennsylvania. Six people hurt, though none seriously, at a restaurant in western uh, a western Ohio city of Salina in Sunday when the tornado touched down. The National Weather Service said Monday at least six tornadoes hit that region, and it began in Indiana, hopped along nearly 40 miles of highway before crossing into Ohio, and then ended up in Pennsylvania. Wow. Yeah, so it traveled quite a ways. Yeah. Uh, And finally, Disney is reportedly in talks to purchase 21st Century Fox, according to its slate, acquiring Mm. its slate of original titles, rights to various franchises, that's all according to CNBC. What are some of the titles? The only one that matters is X-Men. I mean, there's other stuff. Do they now want Harry Potter? Oh, Harry. Or that's Warner, is that Warner Brothers, yeah, that's, I think? that's yeah. Warner Brothers. So, I mean, there's 
There's other things. Uh, this also has to do with Disney uh, looking to pull their content off of Netflix in 2019. And if they combine that with uh, 21st Century Fox's slate of programs, they could have a very robust online offering. Ooh, they just want their talking. hand in everything. But Who doesn't? Really, the important part is for Disney to reunite Marvel with the X-Men so that D- Marvel could fix the X-Men, make an X-Men movie that's good instead of what Fox keeps trying to do, which... Were they connected? Uh, I liked quite a few of those X-Men. Uh, Were X-Men originally connected to Marvel? They're a Marvel property. I did not know that. But way back in the they day... They need to come back home. Fox, or uh, Marvel sold off the movie rights of X-Men and mutants and those types of things to Fox because they needed the money. And now Marvel, of course, is having a uh, ah, resurgence. They have all this money. Okay. They would like to get that property back. Yeah. And the problem is they can't, and they've had some... Uh, not funny? Now they've got to spend like 100 times the original purchase. They're going to get the TV production. They're going to get all this. Now, Fo- 21st Century Fox will keep Fox News, Fox Business, Fox Sports, all that stuff. But the television and movie production would go... Ah. So they just want the X-Men to join the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No, that's what I want. Oh, that's what you I mean, want. there's other things involved Did here. you just say the Marvel Cinematic Universe? That's yes. what it's called. Didn't you know that? So Ridiculous. It, they're already combining all these movies anyway. Guardians of the name. Galaxy and all the, ev- yeah. the Avengers. It seems like everything's conspiring to this one moment in the future. When there will be a major throwdown, they're they're not going to be happy. Everybody. They won't be happy until they have at least a hundred different characters going See, at it. And the, and the best part is they have already have a comic called, um, what's it called? X Men versus the Avengers. It was a whole comic arc. X V A. Twelve to fourteen. Whoa. 14 books. I have it at home if you'd like to reference it. No, you know what? I am so and, um, good. It's it's a great story. I think they could make it into a movie. And yes, you would have like 100 characters on the screen. <sighs> really? Yeah. Why doesn't why don't you all just go back to Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> because <laughs> Wait, it's Don't on say the... you all. Don't put me in that group. Yeah, I didn't play that either. So. Okay. Why don't you all go back to whatever you used to do before all the Marvel stuff? You, you don't have to watch it, man. No, but I have to hear about it. Well, you know, it's uh. it's something a lot of pe- I mean, Thor made $112 uh. million over I know, but Thor is kind of the exception. It's already made a hundred and something million over, you know, the globe. Is this Thor music? No. It's no. Just... It's generic superhero music. Yeah. It sounds super. Uh, I want to see Thor. That is one that I want to see. You'll have a good time. Although, you never tend to have a good time whenever I say you'll have a good time. Yeah. I think you do that more in defiance, I think I will have a good time with this one. Hmm. Because it doesn't involve any... I think you just like spiting me. No, I don't. You've got a powerful spite. Oh, you've never seen my spite. You've got an overspite, actually. You need (laughs) to do do. something about that. It gives me a headache, this overspite. Um, Yeah. I think it's better that maybe they don't get it then. Why? I just think it would be better for the universe if X-Men couldn't return to the rest of the Marvel comic freaks. When does somebody... Freaks? Come on. When does somebody more powerful than Disney, when do they step in and say, you know, you can't keep bullying people. You can't buy everything you can't well when people stop seeing their movies well you can't force movie theaters to show your movies for four weeks straight or we're gonna yeah they can 
No, that's, they sh- that's they, what they're doing. Who's gonna Who's gonna stand up to Disney? Nobody and say stop it. They, who, have, they have Star Wars. People want to watch that movie. It's going to take somebody even bigger than Disney. Apple. Oh, what? sorry. <laughs> they, they're not going to stand up for themselves. No. There's only one movie, well, franchise now, because I've done it multiple times, that I purchased tickets three months out. Star Wars. Yeah. And then but come to already... find out your uh, employee party for Christmas is uh, giving to giving you them for free. Sure. So then I get the opportunity either to see it twice. Lucky. Or because they're going to probably drop this movie in the middle of the uh, afternoon. Or give me it's your tickets. make it difficult for me to get in, so I probably won't see it. I could see it twice, too, though, because I've got movie passes. There you go. Do you guys? I don't know. Do you Do you ever just go home and yeah, see your family? Absolutely. And... In fact, I see these movies with my family. Well, parts of it. There's parts that can't see the movie. So, so you really don't talk. Well, occasionally. They're in the same room. On the it's drive. Dark. On the drive to the theater. And I'm like, so you're looking forward to this? And she's like, nah, not really. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> can't feel, wait to see it. I don't know why, but I feel really bad for your wife. No, she actually, this is, the, the Thor movie was one of the Marvel movies she stayed awake for the entire movie. That's a glowing endorsement right there. She is tired. You'll stay awake. She has two kids and an inattentive husband. Yeah. Yeah. So she's beaten. So by the time you get in, turn out the lights, get in a comfortable seat, she tends to pass out. But she didn't do that at Thor. She, she thought it was an interesting and movie. And is it because it's so funny? Everyone yeah. talks about how funny it's it funny, is. It's funny. There's all kinds of stuff like, going on. Like, is it on. funny like, like the average person would get the funniness or is it like Thor funny? Like, is he dropping, oh, my demagogue is broken. Now you're talking That's about Stranger, Stranger things. things. I know. I just, I don't know what Thor is. No, and you didn't um, get the name right. Right. Okay. No, it was yeah. uh, just general humor. Okay. Stuff that you wouldn't understand. Like, boy, I just flew in from Chicago, and boy, right. are my arms tired. Well, not like that. That's that's not funny. Class- but- that's that's classical humor. There's things that's funny. Like, they'll make a comment that's, like, you know, overly superhero-y, and they'll be like, how did that sound? Was that good? Should I try that oh. again? So, you know, they, they do sort of commentary, self-commentary okay. type stuff. It's Go fun. for Jeff Goldblum. Stay for the post-credit scenes. Really? Yeah. Or you can just leave. Well, that's just really a little care. movie update. I didn't know we were going to give a movie update in the very first segment, but that's great. Well, you cut your cord, right? You don't have... Well, the doctor did that. But you don't have cable <laughs> at your home, right? I do still. You still do? We, none of us watch it. I have this weird fear of cutting it. Because when I last time I... thought you cut I, it. You mm, told me... Okay. No, I want to. Last time I cut it, uh, we cut our phone service. Oh, the wrong I one. I regret giving up our phone. Yeah, I did that once. Our home phone. I thought... Of the, really? I did, yeah. Why on Be- earth would you... Only I, telemarketers call your home phone. No. Yeah. I don't know no. where you've been working. My mom. You've been giving your number out. And your mom. My in-laws. No, but like, and, and you know, people from the neighborhood, but my kids didn't have a phone. So that then forced us to go get another phone for our family. What is the point of the home phone? Tell me. Explain. Uh, it's the same point the phone has had since the inception of the phone. Except why are you paying for an extra phone line? Because I have a 12-year-old that didn't have a phone. Just things in life. And he was always there so his buddies could call him and say, hey, come over. So we had to get – we got rid of that. Then we regretted it. It was a phone we had for 20-something years. Then we had to get my son a phone. 
that's from a different just, state. They can't just gather up the other little rascals and come knocking on the door with no, that was Spanky. Old school. And, that was mm-hmm. old school. Mm-hmm. And you just always had to ride your bike down to was like, Spanky's house. That was pre-phone. Yeah. We live in a post-phone world. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, you're like two people in probably all of BYU Broadcasting that own a home phone. I have a home phone. Yeah, two people. Well, I bet there's more. There's probably more than that. If we wanted to pull. Hey, if you have a home phone, give us a call. one <laughs> On your home phone. And explain. BYU. Explain why. The, the, the reason is because it's just good to have a landline in case all cell towers go down. And today we're going to be talking about it. If, if, there, was a, if there was a nuclear event. Yeah. Some catastrophic world event that destroyed most of the United States. You would want a home phone. <laughs> but using your logic, I, I should sign up for Amazon Prime Video, Netflix, Hulu, uh, YouTube with no. live TV. Because no. that way, you know, I, I have another option. I can use no. that, too. No, I didn't get that. His so that it's totally if, if Netflix, yeah. for some reason, shuts down, yeah. well, at least I'll have Amazon Prime and Hulu this, and YouTube this TV. Seems, this seems to be an exaggeration. Of now, the this facts. would be for, because I don't get emergency services from Netflix. Well, right. some might if consider... If a child is bleeding in my kitchen and the cell lines are down, I need to use a phone. Some might consider Netflix going down an emergency. Well... Some people need to recheck priorities. But. That's right. By the way, so we're, today we're going to be talking about a book called Raven Rock. Yes. Which is what happens to the United States government. What if? If there is a catastrophe. Oh, I thought that was the rock group that Raven Simone no, formed. That never happened. Hmm. Uh, Raven Rock, by the way, huge book. It's like five. Hundred some odd pages, but it, the thing about the book is it tells you all of the secrets of how the government is organized and going to operate under like a, a, a cataclysmic event. And by the way, this is what happens when the government and the rest of us just sort of deal with ourselves because yeah. it's in the middle of the catastrophe. Sadly, only fourteen hundred people will yeah. be saved. This, apparently, this is the lifeboat concept, and even worse on, than that, off. the spouses don't get to go. 1,400, isn't that the doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses? No. no oh, okay. No, no. The um, 1,400 people are saved uh, in the bunkers. And the government, by are the they, way, a lot of Congress, most of Congress isn't even saved. Well, okay, so, so there's, there's a bright It's side. really more of the executive branch that's saved. So we're going to be speaking with the author about kind of the hidden, the hidden story, the hidden, uh, the, the hidden plan. There is an actual plan. In fact, and George Stephanopoulos apparently leaked it accidentally at a party. He was carrying around a card, and the card was going to tell him what to do in case of an, a cataclysmic event. Wait, and so then, he gets saved? Well, George? He, he would have gotten saved during the Clinton administration. Hmm. Now he's going to die like the rest of us. Now he's on the bottom of the list. Yeah, it's kind of sad. But that's straight ahead. We, we're going to call it the government's secret plan to save itself, Raven Rock. That's actually one of the locations, apparently, where they're all going to head. We'll talk about that up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Imagine there was a foreseeable tragedy that would wipe out the country 
What would the government do? Do they have a plan to save the human race? Well, according to our next uh, guest, historian Garrett M. Graff, the government had a plan like this for the Cold War, and not everyone would live, sadly to say. Uh, Not everyone's covered under the plan. Here to speak with us today is Garrett M. Graff, the author of the book Rock Raven, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us – did I say – oh, sorry, Raven Rock – and to save ourselves, uh, so here's the name of the book. One more time. Um, Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Uh, Garrett, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is a fascinating topic. And by the way, great job on the book. Um, it really, it, by the way, hefty. I, the book itself would be a great, I think, protective device um, from any radiation. It's this story. It, it makes a lot of sense in the Cold War that they were, you know, the government was so afraid of, a, I guess, a nuclear attack of some sort. Um, how did you get into wanting to study this topic of all topics? So I, as a magazine writer in Washington covering national security, I had run up against these plans uh, sort of many times over the years. I mean, they're, they're, the modern incarnation of them is known as continuity of government, COG plans, COG hmm. plans. And, uh, you know, in the course of other stories, I had, you know, heard about people who had been to some of these mountain bunkers around Washington as part of exercises. I'd talked to some people who had been evacuated to them uh, on September 11th. Um, I even had a chance at one point for a story to fly with the first helicopter squadron of the U.S. Air Force, which is based at Andrews Air Force Base and is responsible for evacuating the nation's top officials in the event of an emergency evacuation of Washington. Um, but what really got me interested in these plans was a colleague of mine at the magazine where I was working then one day came into the office with an intelligence officer's badge hmm. uh, that he had found on the floor of a sort of transit parking garage on his commute. Uh, and the intelligence officer had dropped it uh, sort of unknowingly on, on, the, uh, on the ground. And when I started to look at the badge, uh, it, when I turned it over, it had on the back evacuation instructions. And so uh, being a curious reporter, I uh, started to follow them uh, and mm. got on Google Maps and followed them out through uh, Virginia, out into West Virginia eventually. And on Google Satellite, you could see exactly where they ended up. And it was this rode up the side of a mountain, and then there was a chain-link fence and a guard shack, and then about 100 yards past the, the chain-link fence, the, uh, the road just disappeared into the side of the mountain uh, mm. behind these big concrete bunker doors. And I was like, wow, like this is a facility that I've never heard of uh, that doesn't exist on the map. Uh, but is obviously part of these continuity of government plans in the modern era. Uh, and that sort of let me, uh, that, that started me down the path of investigating both what these plans once were and what they are today. Now, was that location Raven Rock or was that another location? No, it's another location entirely that I, I talk about actually at the end of the book. Um, it's uh, sort of the 
the public name of the facility is the Allegheny Ballistics Laboratory uh, in Rocket Center, West Virginia. But mm. it's actually uh, in addition to some uh, scientific research that goes on at the facility, it's a main hub of these continuity of government facilities uh, and relocation sites around Washington. Now, in the in uh, I mean, I know there's a lot of a lot of uh, locations and a lot of interesting information. One story that I heard was about um, how George Stephanopoulos had let it slip when he was an advisor in the Clinton administration. Yeah. And so this is, you know, what's fascinating about these plans is that they are uh, you know, they sort of used to be, certainly during the Cold War, one of the most closely guarded secrets in the U.S. government. And so you had officials who would work in adjacent offices, who, you know, who would work together every day, who didn't necessarily know uh, who was included in these emergency plans. Uh, and I tell the story in the book of when Aaron Sorkin, the director, was doing the research that ultimately became the West Wing and the American president, and he was interviewing George Stephanopoulos, who was then the uh, White House communications director under President Clinton. And George Stephanopoulos showed him the bus pass, uh, or what, uh, what George Stephanopoulos thought was a bus pass that he carried every day in his wallet. And when he, when he looked closer, it turned out to be an evacuation pass. His his instructions for how how and where he should go in the event of nuclear war, and Stephanopoulos uh, sort of explained how challenging uh, you know it was sort of mentally to hold on to this, and Aaron Sorkin turned it into an episode that some of the listeners might remember, uh, where White House Deputy Chief of Staff Josh Lyman gets. Uh, gets one of these passes and sort of struggles with the ethical and moral weight of it. Right. And then, uh, and then when they're actually filming that episode, Dee Dee Myers, who had worked for George Stephanopoulos as the White House press secretary, uh, pulled Aaron Sorkin aside and said, you know, I, I, I want you to know I sort of think this episode's baloney because these passes don't really exist. And Aaron Sorkin is standing there and oh. sort of realizes, like, wow, like, Dee Myers, you never knew that you weren't actually going to be saved in nuclear war and that your <laughs> co-worker, George Stephanopoulos, would have been. She wasn't invited to the party. That's exactly. crazy. Wow, but I guess decisions like that have to be made. Another point you bring up in the book is the fact that there's not – there wasn't room for families either. Yeah, and this is this, this is both – uh, this is probably the most long-standing problem in the history of these COG plans, uh, which is at the very first government evacuation drill in the summer of 1954, uh, when Dwight Eisenhower ran the first full-scale evacuation drill of the U.S. government, uh, what was known as Operation Alert, he uh, his, his cabinet secretaries, uh, you know, all. Uh, evacuated, practiced evacuating out to one of the two main government bunkers, a facility in Berryville, Virginia, that's known as Mount Weather. And they, uh, the newspapers at the time talked about uh, how, how much domestic trouble the cabinet secretaries got into when their wives all realized 
that their husbands would evacuate in nuclear war without them. And mm. that the Eisenhower wives uh, had uh, put, spent the afternoon that day playing a very chilly game of rummy back in Washington, <laughs> uh, awaiting their husband's return. Oh, wow. And that uh, this, this, this problem, even though it appeared in that first drill, was never really rectified, that uh, sort of government officials uh, would have uh, throughout the Cold War and even up to the present day have to choose between staying with their families or following their duty to the government. And it, it was a problem straight through the Cold War um, when Chief Justice Earl Warren uh, ascended to that role atop the Supreme Court. He was given one of these evacuation passes by the Office of Emergency Preparedness. And he sat there and he's like, well, I don't see a pass for Mrs. Warren. And the official, you know, sort of had to explain to him, well, you know, Mr. Chief Justice, we consider you one of the most important people in the U.S. government. And uh, the Chief Justice said, well, I've got good news for you. You can uh, make room for another most important person in government because <laughs> I'm not leaving without Mrs. Warren. And he turned his pass back in and would have never evacuated in the event of nuclear war. That is – that's amazing. And again, I guess uh... – these were the decisions that they were making under the knowledge that they had and the fear that they had. What what else was behind the making of this? I mean, was because to some degree it seemed it, it did it not seem extreme and uh, the idea that you were basically going to leave the rest of the government or the rest of the country um, unprotected. I guess what what was going on in their minds to create such a thing. Yeah, so the idea was that, uh, you know, America needed to survive. Um, and it became what I, uh, part of what I find so fascinating about this as a topic is how quickly that question uh, turns existential. You know, if you are trying to preserve America, well, what are you trying to preserve? Are you trying to preserve the president? Are you trying to preserve three branches of government? Are you literally trying to preserve the Constitution? Hmm. And so what they ended up doing uh, is they have a whole series of plans, not just for uh, the, the officials, but also for the historical totems that have bound us together generation by generation as Americans. And so at the National Gallery of Art, they have a plan to evacuate um, Leonardo da Vinci's Ginevra da Vinci from, uh, from the art gallery. Uh, at the Library of Congress, they ranked their historical artifacts and decided that they would save Lincoln's Gettysburg Address before they saved George Washington's military commission. Hmm. And at the National Archives, uh, they decided that they would save the Declaration of Independence before they saved the Constitution. Uh, and that all of these documents would, uh, you know, would be there after nuclear war to sort of show that America still existed. Interesting. Um, and I, actually, probably my favorite detail in, in the uh, in the entire book uh, is that through the Cold War, there was a specially trained team of park rangers in Philadelphia whose job it was to evacuate the Liberty Bell in the event of a Soviet <laughs> missile attack. 
Wow. But all of this sort of really imagined uh, this sort of uh, semi-bizarre post-apocalypse analog of the peacetime U.S. government. And so every aspect of government had its own uh, sort of post-apocalypse duties. Yeah. The, The post office would have been the agency actually in charge of registering the dead and figuring out who was still alive in the United States. The Park Service would be the agency that ran the refugee camps, uh, sort of figuring that national parkland would be uh, largely untouched. And so you would be able to set up large refugee camps uh, on inside national parks uh, once the urban areas of the country were destroyed. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture would be the agency would, that would... Uh, you know, be in charge of feeding the the post-war population to, uh, and, and everything up to uh, and including internal internal revenue service. The IRS had its own plan uh, for how it would levy taxes on nuclear damaged property uh, after nuclear war, because not even the apocalypse would stop the IRS from coming after you for taxes. <laughs> Oh, my heavens. That is amazing. Again, we're speaking with Garrett M. Graff, who is the author of the book Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. And uh, one of the things about it, uh, Garrett, that that was fascinating to me is it seemed like it was much more focused on the executive branch of government than um, than the legislative branch is. So did the legislative branch have its own plan? The legislative branch had a little bit of a plan. They they built their own bunker at the Greenbrier, which is a, a fancy resort in West Virginia, White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, where the House and the Senate would have evacuated uh, during the Cold War. Uh, it, it's actually now open to the public. And if you ever find yourself in West Virginia, it's well worth the stop to, to walk through these chambers that would have once held the House and the Senate during nuclear war. And, just, uh, and the dormitories were, you know, dual bunk beds where people uh, where members of Congress uh, in rank order of seniority uh, would have slept uh, uh. In, inside the Greenbrier. And, and, and the, the preparations were incredibly advanced. I mean, each of those bunks was specifically assigned and in the drawer uh, at the bunk, uh, you know, w- would be your prescription medications and your even your your prescription eyeglasses. Wow! Uh, when you, when you moved into uh, to Congress, they would come and ask you what what you would need for the apocalypse. But what what I thought was sort of so funny about it was the uh, the the government didn't really trust telling all of the members of Congress in <laughs> advance about the whereabouts of the congressional bunker because just there were so many members of Congress, they thought it would be uh, hard to keep the secret. And so uh, the members of Congress, uh, if, if war had come during uh, when Congress was in session, they would have uh, you know, just evacuated straight from Capitol Hill. But if, uh, if nuclear war came on the weekends or during congressional recess, members of Congress were told to go to their local FBI field office 
and there were sealed letters that were awaiting them in those FBI field offices with instructions on where to report for their bunker. Oh, wow. So secretive. Is there is there still a plan today? And is it is it this robust? Um, and, uh, and and what would happen with the president? So it, it is still very much uh, a, a, a robust uh, plan. Um, in, in some ways, uh, you know, today it is even more robust than what you would normally have seen during the Cold War because of the technological advances that we have had uh, and the fears since September 11th. So many of these bunkers are still operational. Uh, Raven Rock, the the title of the book, uh, is a bunker in uh, Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, where the Pentagon would go. It is still running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The Mount Weather, the bunker in Berryville, Virginia, where the president would likely be evacuated, uh, is still going. And we still keep a fleet of what are known as presidential doomsday planes, uh, these converted 747 airborne command posts that would serve uh, as the president's sort of oval office in the sky in the event of nuclear war. Um, those planes are still kept uh uh, when the president is here in the United States, uh, one of these planes is always sitting uh, on the tarmac at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio or off at Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska, and it's fully staffed and its engines are turning and it's ready to take off in just 15 minutes. Wow. The president right now is overseas in, in Asia on his trip. One of these planes is flying uh, not very far away from him, ready to evacuate him at a moment's notice. Hmm. That's amazing. I mean, I guess that's as you need to do that, right? You've got to protect, uh, I guess, democracy is the idea by protecting the president. Um, what else? What else kind of surprised you? What else? Uh, what What else did you learn in your research of this that that would maybe surprise the rest of us? Well, one of the things looking at the the presidency is, you know, we have such a narrow idea of what the presidency actually is. I mean, we think of the the president as the person who we elect on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November every four years. But in fact, what we saw during the Cold War was the transformation of the presidency into an entity that actually today encompasses several hundred people and uh, that, that really for much of the, uh, America's history, we did not have a very good presidential succession system. Um, and the, it was really only the arrival of nuclear war and uh, the need to control on a minute-by-minute basis the nuclear arsenal that led us to pass that 25th Amendment that guides presidential succession. And so you have not just the members of the cabinet uh, who we think of in the member in the line of succession, but each of those cabinet offices also has its own line of succession. Hmm. And so uh, you end up with a scenario where if there's a catastrophic surprise attack on Washington, you end up with an incredibly odd set of government officials who pop up and would declare themselves the leaders of the country. 
um, people like the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, the top federal prosecutor in Chicago, the U.N. Ambassador in New York, and even uh, the Director of the Department of Energy's Savannah River Operations Center in Savannah, Georgia, mm. uh, would uh, become one of the highest-ranking officials in the U.S. government. Really? Wow. And, and, and none of us knew anything about this. Yeah, and, and we, we knew sort of very little about these plans during the Cold War. And, and a lot of this information is, is sort of public if you know where to look for it, but it's certainly not commonly known uh, e- even today. Yeah. Um, and that we, uh, you know, have this whole series uh, of doomsday plans, uh, you know, even today uh, that have been updated for, for the modern era. You know, the, the post office, is no longer the agency in charge of registering the dead in the event of nuclear war. Phew. But the post office is the agency that's in charge of distributing medical countermeasures mm. in the event of a public health pandemic uh, or a biological or chemical attack on the really? United States. Really? So okay. The, the next time you think about whether, uh, sort of what to leave as your holiday tip for your postman <laughs> yeah. or postwoman, you know, you really want to be one of the first people on your block to get that Ebola vaccine. That's so true and so interesting. Wow. Garrett, great stuff. Very, very interesting. The book again, Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Just wonderful research, I think. And again, um, a lot of it shows you about the nature of man, right? Our fears and our desire to try to protect ourselves, our government, our way of life. Um, what what have you done to protect yourself, your family? Uh, you know, some families are very much into two-year supplies or, you know, emergency preparedness. What have you done? Uh, just a little, a little uh, wake-up call for, I guess, all of us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's interesting that all of these political leaders would be saved. And, um, you know, the rest of us, I guess, gone. Just gone. That's the, sad. The, Super the sad. The movie 2012. Is that a good movie? No. no. But there's a, uh, <laughs> a part of it towards the end where everyone ends up in China. Because apparently China wasn't destroyed by the volcano Ooh, yeah. under Yellowstone. Like the rest of the country. And um, they have been a secret plan to save the world's elite and the intelligent and hmm. government. And they have these things called arcs and they, they're big boat type things. And they just kick them out into the ocean and hopefully you survive. And then on the show The Last Man on Earth, you kind of get the other side of that where it's not the elite. No. It's kind of the, the sub-average. The obnoxious, maybe rude, maybe a little too <laughs> chipper – and then it ends up being maybe a genetic flaw that allows them to survive whatever disaster. Because they haven't even pointed out what the disaster is. So they're they're you know there's currently like a disease. they're currently in Mexico, and oh, they are. Uh, you find out later. over the course of this latest episode that the newest home that they've chosen to inhabit 
was the former home of a Mexican drug lord. <laughs> so it's kind of juxtaposed with all these scenes of people being killed. And so what do you do? So and they're baby proofing the house. <laughs> like I, that's what I love about that. Uh, the last man on earth is, is so if you were all of a sudden alone on the earth, what do you do? Like, do you go grab the the sports car you've always wanted? Whatever you want, apparently. I guess you. It would be fun to drive a Ferrari or whatever for for a while. while. They were driving around the A team van. They've got the (laughs) yeah. They've they've driven Marty McFly's or Doc uh, Doc Brown's time machine car, the 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 DeLorean. DeLorean. Would they? That's funny. So uh, they've also, if you're Will Forte, you get in a medieval suit and you go to a junkyard and have this giant magnet attract you to it. Okay. Just for fun. Just something to do. And then everybody else leaves him there. Everyone else on the show tends to just sort of do what they want, but it's not crazy. Forte is just like whatever he can think of. He's like human bowling ball and all yeah. kinds of stuff he tries Lots to do. Lots of destruction. Yeah. yeah. Paint but, and wood chippers. But you'd have to like get the food, as much food as you can. You can. I don't know. I, don't, I think it'd be very stressful. Because then you're just always driving around looking for someone else to talk well, to. Well, these they don't really stockpile food. You just go down to the grocery store because it's still there. Well, I know, but isn't it going to eventually just not all of it? Most, bad. most, well, then a lot of it's canned. Yeah, then you approach our whoa, you approach our economy where you have a lot of canned goods, a lot of boxed yeah. goods that yeah. they last forever. They did have a cow at one point. I don't know whatever yeah. happened to the cow. Once you they find a used cow it for dairy, that's money. Well, it died. Oh, I don't remember that. I don't want to spoil too much of the show. It always uh, always dies. So be thinking, what would you do if you were the last person on Earth? Uh, up next, we're going to be talking about uh, some other headlines, including P. Diddy may have a new name. you got to keep up on these things. I know. I think you, it's just P.D. You don't want to reference him inappropriately. Yeah, because how else would you know how to find Utopia? It's either P.D. or P.D. Period. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, a lot of stuff we got to cover on the show. Today, we've been trying to keep you alive longer. If there is a world calamity or, or uh, catastrophe, the government has a plan. Do you? That's the big question of, of the day. And um, other really pressing news, P. Diddy may uh, be looking to be called something else. So, rapper and uh, producer... Sean Combs has that's changed his, his name. name. Yeah. That's his birth name. A video posted to Twitter Saturday. Combs says he was celebrating his birthday by changing his name to Love, a.k.a. Brother Love. Mm, I don't know that I'm going to go He says there. he won't be a- answering to Puffy, Diddy, Puff Daddy, or any of his other monikers that he's had over the years. Can you just keep changing your name? Before announcing what he's called, uh, he called it Serious, Serious News. He explained huh. that the name change was due to the fact that he has changed as a person and is not who he was before. Okay. He says he knows changing his name again is risky and may come off as corny. Yeah. Bing, yes bing. and yes. He turned <laughs> Nailed four, it. He turned 48 on Saturday. There's some danger in changing your name based on what your current feeling is. No, absolutely. Because mine would be like I'm achy, hun- breaky, back. Yeah. I'm tired. You can call me tired from now on. You can call me swollen hips. <laughs> Grankle. <What? laughs> swollen hips. Yeah, don't ask. Um, I, I'm not calling him that. 
Mean okay, well, a brotherly love means something totally different. Brother love. Brother love. Yeah, yeah no. Not doing it. I'm going to call him. What was the name before P. Diddy was Puff Daddy? I'm not sure anymore. I'm calling him Puff Daddy. Can't we just call him what his mother named him? Sean? Sean? Nice try, Sean. Lawrence Gomes. Okay, that's it, huh? How about, that's I'll, all I'll, we got. I'll, I'll do this. I'll call him Sean Love Combs. I'll compromise. You're going to use a little... you got to get a puff in there. Or a pee. Well, I'll puff while I'm saying it. Sean Puffy Love Combs. Puffy Love. And they call it no. Puffy Love. I think he's established what he wants to be called. My wife says I'm Puffy Love. That's different. It's a great song by Donnie and Marie. Oh, yeah. Or at least they sang it. That's why she's like sliding a nice salad in front of you. Here, Puffy. <laughs> Here, Puffy. <laughs> Love, will you eat this salad? Oh, boy. Honestly, that let's just put that in the Who Cares file. Well, there's a lot of that. McDonald's in Singapore, they've introduced lockers in their restaurants. You can put your phone in there while you eat. Isn't that Why? kind of enforced over so there, though? No pho- there's no phone at the table. You can enjoy a meal with whoever you're with. Yeah, but you go to McDonald's for the free Wi-Fi more than anything else. Well, that's here. I don't you know always how see the businessmen with their laptop <laughs> and their whole office spread out on there. Oh, boy. That's cray-cray. There you go. All right. Uh, more fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Morning. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here. Uh, your guide, your, your guide on the side, your coach, <sighs> your friend. Along with Jeff and Terry, the gang is gathered. We're doing what we can today, folks. Uh... I'm telling you, I had a breeze of a drive-in. Life was very good. It seems like they're clearing out some construction now. Oh, nice. I had a straight shot. Straight shot. I didn't have to run the gauntlet. I I feel really good. Oh, I was waiting for a butt. No. Felt really good. And President Trump is in Asia. The Chinese are rolling out the... There's a state dinner going on Special carpets. Uh, Oh, is there? State dinner? Yeah. A fishless or a headless fish will be served? Possibly. They are Some taking sort of grouper. I'm grouper. Kidding. I have no idea. Uh, they are taking really good care of the president, which I think is wonderful. And uh, isn't it a koi dinner? <laughs> it's a koi fish dinner out of a koi fish pond that he he fed it first. Yeah, you always want to fatten. Yeah. yeah, it's like Kobe beef. <laughs> um, it's koi beef, and uh, he he's having a good visit. He interestingly, I, I think I'm figuring out the president. It's. This is a very important lesson I've learned. Really? Do you remember? I think you're the only one. No, well, no, yeah. You've well, cracked the code. I'm a highly trained professional. Here's the deal. Do you remember he was so mad about how China is taking advantage of America? Yes. And he, that was a big part of his election, is that we're going to fix that because we're tired of China taking care or taking or abusing us uh, in our, our policies. So now he's over there, and now he's saying, I'm not mad at China. Who's he mad at? Administrations. So here's the trick of Donald mm. Trump. Donald Trump's enemy is anybody that's not in the room. <laughs> Whoever is in the room with him is yeah. his friend. Anybody right. that's sure. not in the room is his enemy, even if it's his own country or his own past presidents. 
anybody that's not in the room. And, and so it's actually, when you think about that, not a bad philosophy until you're in the room with the people you just right. dissed. So when they get up to go to the bathroom, that's when he can start the, yeah. the trash talk. He's the he's like the it, he's the great ant that talks about everybody. It'd be more effective <laughs> probably forty years ago when everything wasn't necessarily yeah. recorded to right. the same extent it is now. Because now everyone just knows. But what's so funny is it actually works because they are they don't they haven't rolled out the carpet like this for one of our presidents in a long time. No. This is like they're treating him like a Russian czar. So I was reading this article this morning. It was saying in Japan they had him play golf with a Japan's top golf champion. They gave him a uh, Make America Great inspired hat. Yeah, those are Talking nice. about their alliance, uh-huh. make their alliance great. Uh, the, the president there, or the uh, prime minister there called him his favorite guy. Mm-hmm. In South Korea, the, they introduced him as the leader of the world. They had shouting children and colorful costume guards. Yeah. The president uh, of South Korea trip. was already making great progress on making America great again, is how he introduced really? the president and wow. so praised him on his great progress his work already. There. Um, let's see, it goes on to China. It says a phalanx of soldiers were at attention, flags mm. waving children, yelling welcome, heads of stare to usually given low key receptions at the airport, according to the AP. Not him. But real pomp and circumstance uh, reserved for arrivals at the Great Hall of People. So Trump got actually like two different welcomes. He goes to the Forbidden City. He had a private tour from the president of yeah. China. Yeah. See? This so the Japanese golfer was, of course, told, You will lose this match. You right. let him win. And so we will burn the stakes. They are, and, and Trump was clearly impressed by it's, all the attempts to flatter him. But see, so. it's working. So this is what's so funny. Back in the States, everybody's mad. Not everybody. Half the people are mad because they don't like his approach. Right. But his approach apparently works. The other side of it is they hold a press conference. Yeah. Usually what the past presidents would do is say, hey, when we hold a press conference, we have to take questions yeah. because we have a free yeah. press. That's how this works. Oh, he's loving this. And uh, China and, and uh-uh. uh, Trump agreed. We're not taking any questions. We're not taking any questions. And we won't take any political hostages or we won't take any Whoa. dissidents. We won't oh, okay. take anything. <laughs> I love how, love how Brian Regan jokes about, I wish I would have known that was an option as a student growing up. Yeah. Oh, I'm not taking any questions today. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a good life? So he's... I really think there is. A, a, I'm going back to my old philosophy. There's some. There's some. Uh, what is it? I don't know. There's a pattern. There's to a his plan in the chaos. Craziness. Yeah. Hmm. We'll see. Well, I mean, the reality is, he'll come back, and then guess what he'll do? He'll blast China again. Right. Not get taxes passed. China's of- not in the country. Wherever he is, he'll blast the. Op- I mean, he'll blast the Pope. He already has, yeah. Right, until he wants to, until yeah, he's visiting the Pope. Yeah, and then he's all friends. And it's like, we're good friends. Yeah. <laughs> not a, you know, not as confusing as I thought it was at first. We got a great show, but first let's get to the headlines. Uh, Terry's going to enlighten us about the news. The, the, the uh, Justice Department told AT&T that it should sell Turner Broadcasting, which oversees CNN before it will approve the company's pending $85 billion deal with Time Warner. The New York Times reported this on Wednesday. The merger could also reportedly be approved if AT&T sells DirecTV. Mm. AT&T CEO Randall Stevenson said later Wednesday that he has never offered to sell CNN and there is no intention of doing so. The Justice Department is assessing antitrust concerns surrounding the deal, which would create a giant media and telecommunications company. President Donald Trump lashed out, has lashed out at CNN. I don't know if you've noticed yeah, him doing I, I this. I think he's, yeah, I've heard pictures of Throughout up his presidency for what he calls their biased reporting on his administration, which has led some 
come to think, like, is this the Trump administration telling the Department of Justice to let's go after CNN? Or no, but th- this is the Department of Justice. Sure. This is Mr. Beauregard Sessions, right? He's not going Jefferson. to. He's not going to. Do exactly something. what President Trump asks yeah, him to do at a no. day. They had lunch like three days before Trump went to China last week. That would be crazy. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, there's there's th- theories that way. There's now a he said, she said, or actually it's a he said, he said situation yeah. where the DOJ is saying that actually the AT&T guy offered to sell CNN and AT&T saying they told us. And so it's really, it's really kind of strange. So they basically works. have to get to get the AT&T deal through. They have to either sell. CNN or Direct TV? Maybe, maybe not. It, that's the thing is, even those comments now are in question okay. on who said what, when, and this was a meeting that happened yeah. over the last couple of days. Uh, this will probably all end up in court. Oh, good. Just to sum that up, we lot. haven't had something in court right. for days, and it's eighty-five billion dollars. And whether you can watch TV with your phone, I guess, is how that all works. Okay. Yeah. The House Republicans' back tax plan released last week would add $1.7 trillion to the deficit over the next decade, according to a new review by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, who the Republicans feel are very partisan. Oh, yeah. I added that last part. Uh, $1.7 trillion? $1.7 trillion. You know, it's chump change, right? Uh, ABC News says the plan adds $1.4 trillion to, that de- to the deficit, but the figure goes up to $1.7 trillion with interest. You always forget to add the yeah. interest. Uh, which put the review together in response to requests for information uh, from Representative Richard Neal, a Democrat, on the House Ways and Means Committee. Republicans have said the plan will spur economic growth, which the study did not take into account because you can't can't predict what's going to happen to the economy. Right. Republicans are aiming to pass the bill out of committee this week uh, by Thanksgiving, and the Senate is working on its own version of the bill. Which may be completely different, so all this will be for naught. But But if you look at one, I don't like to look at it as 1.7 trillion. Yeah, 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 go ahead. I like to look at it as, as like thirty small installments yeah. of hundred billion each. That's how you pay for your cell over, phone. Yeah. yeah. Don't forget years. the shipping and handling too. Oh yeah. Those can uh, add up. And then make sure you check when it's going to arrive. You don't want it to arrive after Christmas. The tax plan that is. Breaking news out of the Kremlin. What? Russian President Vladimir Putin and President Trump are currently setting up their next meeting will be on Friday at an economic <laughs> summit. In <gasps> Vietnam. Really? This according to the Kremlin. Now, uh, oh, so we didn't know about that? No, this the, the Kremlin new, released news from the Kremlin. When the president's meeting with Putin. Yeah, yeah. Seems like you'd want to be the first to announce that. Maybe. Well, I mean, just if you're being investigated for Russian sure. collusion. I don't know. Okay. It just that came out of the Kremlin okay. this morning. Breaking uh, news. With every hotel in Puerto Rico at capacity, the Federal Emergency Management Agency... FEMA is trying something new, flying displaced Puerto Ricans to the mainland in the U.S. where they will live in temporary housing in New York and Florida. The island is still reeling from Hurricane Maria with residents across Puerto Rico living without power and clean water. Through FEMA's Transition Shelter Assistance Program, displaced Puerto Ricans living in shelters will be flown to the mainland. Their plane tickets and housing costs covered by FEMA. This is FEMA's first time doing an airlift following a natural disaster. It typically pays for people who can't be in their homes to stay in hotels. Mm. Mike Breen, a federal coordinating officer of FEMA, told CBS News out of 300 families who have been offered assistance, 30 have have actually accepted the offer, so not everyone wants to leave the island. They don't want to leave their homes. He says thousands of Puerto Ricans have already left their island, the island on their own, with 100,000 already settling in Florida. Well, yeah, that's sad. So everything's going great. Yeah, it's going As we heard, it's going great. Uh, We're just going to bring a bunch of them over. A perfect 10. Just give them a place to stay. Perfect 10 on the recovery. 
Okay. I don't remember us doing that with other recoveries. No, but it is an island in the middle of a big ocean. A huge ocean. And uh, they may not have power till maybe Christmas. Oh, those if, poor If they're people. lucky. Yeah. But you know what? Hmm? They did release a new iPhone. They did? <gasps> so whatever's going on in Puerto Rico, that should it's fine. trump it. Uh, uh, allegedly. And finally, it looks like America won't be getting its own army of space marines after all. At least uh. not this year. CNN- uh! That's right. We, we want space we marines. We want space marines. <laughs> CNN reports Congress has dropped the proposal to create a new space corps, similar to the Marine Corps, but spacier, from the final version of the $692 billion National Defense Authorization Act. According to the Hill website, the uh, proposal described the duties of the space corps as deterring aggression in, from, and through space and providing combat-ready space forces, among space other corps. things. Well, the uh, space corps, supported by leaders of the House Armed Services Committee, but opposed by the White House and Pentagon was dropped. The uh, final bill did call for further study of the idea. We will not allow the United States National Security Space Enterprise to continue to drift towards a space Pearl Harbor, pro-space core lawmakers said in a statement Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, you don't want like some like last second space attack. Right. Yeah, it's a good point. Now, if we could probably repel a space attack from another country on this planet. We could take on any country. But if there here. was a force from, say, another planet who had yeah. the technology to get to our planet, like demagogues, could we do anything? They're from mm. they're from a different dimension, not a different planet. Just an know, but it's just the only spacey word, weird thing I've ever learned gotcha. in the last. If you want to see one, just you know, turn yourself upside down. Yeah, just flip. Yeah, see, I don't understand what that meant. That's kind of weird. But uh, I don't think we really could do anything against aliens, so. But unless we had Space Corps. Right. Come on, just get Jeff Goldblum and Will and, Smith. And okay, really, they're they're give them a virus. They're when, actors. When I think of Space Corps, I think of uh, there's a James Bond movie, Moonraker. Yes. That looks ridiculous as people are out there floating in their spacesuits shooting lasers that don't exist. Well, they did in the movie. Right. You've got to let your imagination go a little bit. Well, that one was hard because it looked, you know, ridiculous. Speaking of ridiculous. Hey, we just lost a Bond girl. Speaking of oh, we did? Bond movies. Yeah. Who? The Bond girl from You Only Live Twice. She died. She was 79 years old. You, right. you Only Live Twice? She only lived once, apparently. Mm. Well, may she rest in peace. Yeah. Until she comes back. What was her name? Do you remember? I'll have to look it up. Okay. I'm glad you brought us up to date on that. Um, I didn't, because really, there's a Bond girl that could be yeah. passing every year. Sure. Because Bond's put out so many movies. That's too bad. Uh, tra- another tragedy. Nutella fans are freaking Karen, out. Karen Dorr. Karen Dorr. All right. There's just a lot to work with there. Karen Dorr, uh, Bond girl from You Only Live Twice, passed away. This is the film that Sean Connery, he took a break for one film, and then that's the one that George Lazenby did, the Australian guy. Then he came back and did one more, You Only Live Twice. Straight from the James Bond, uh, all you can know about Bond book. Having said that, he actually did one more that was not part of the Bond canon. Okay. That's I'm done. That's your Bond update for the day. Sorry, back to the Nutella. Nutella fans are freaking out over a recipe change, folks. Yes, they are changing the recipe of Nutella. They already did. They didn't tell anybody. 
those, those monsters. Dirty monsters. Which is part of the problem. This is why we need a space corps. Uh, Nutella said in a post on its German Facebook page on Tuesday that it was fine-tuning its recipe. How do you fine-tune perfection? Well, you add more powdered milk and spread the sugar content uh, and increase the spread's sugar content. So the sugar went up from 55.9% to 56.3%. By the way, right. total victory. The skim milk, skim milk powder went from 7.5 to 8.7. Which, let's let's talk in non-technical terms, they're watering down the Nutella with powdered milk. So, on the website Mashable.com, they report that pro- that probably caused some cocoa to be lost in the new recipe, which would explain why the new version is slightly lighter in color. Ah... This is going to backlash. I, there's going to be a huge backlash. Oh, yeah. But the fat content went from 31% to 30.9%. Ooh, that's another thing that people are not going to like. It went down? Yes. What are they doing? <laughs> well, they increased the skim milk. I'm glad the sugar went up. The Ma- sugar went up and the skim milk went up, but the fat content went down. Yes. Nutella is one of the signs that you've kind of given up in life. No, and people are okay with that. This is the sign, and it came from my college student son. He said, Dad, I found a great breakfast. <laughs> it involves nuts. like So like I'm like, like peanut butter? And he's mm. like, kind of. And just bread. And I'm like, like wheat bread, whole wheat bread? And he's like, mm. kind of. But no, it's white bread with Nutella on it. Yeah. That is the breakfast of champions yeah. right there. You know what? We used to call that, I think, a ho-ho. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that dessert? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> oh, it's, it's, he- it's healthy. It says it right on the uh But these right are hazelnuts, there. right? Mm-hmm. Hazelnuts. Which, by the name, oh, by the way, a great name from the 50s. Um, I went to a play last night oh. and uh, learned a lot about Perry Como. Whenever you get culture, yeah, it's it's a little little scary. So go ahead. It's a lot scary. Mm. But boy, did they! And I went with my mom, and she sang every song. So from, Perry Perry well, Como, the Italian, or he's I'm sure he's got Italian in his family. So you were just connecting with your roots. Yeah, yeah. Newly found. Yeah, but oh, always known. Mm, really? Just yeah. because you like say spaghetti? Yeah, and pizza. You're like, There's a reason. My I like favorite that. meal. This this is why. My favorite meal is lasagna. Mm. Lasagna. Right. There you go. I don't know if that's how you say it. But, but it feels right, doesn't it? Totally it totally feels right. Yeah. It must and be genetic. When, let me just tell you. When somebody is 7% <laughs> okay. Italian slash Greek, mm. you Can know. Can you just say Mediterranean? No. It kind of encompasses no, that whole region. No. Not really? Okay, mm-hmm. go ahead. But I've always known that I had a little bit of. My my motherland. In Did me. you feel any connection with the Mario brothers? A little bit. Did you, Luigi, especially? Mm. So, would you consider yourself Italian? I don't know if I'm Italian or Greek. Okay, because I was just going to say, if I were a professional baseball player uh-huh. and yes. I only got a hit seven percent of the time, I wouldn't be a professional baseball player. Yeah. Well, well I don't know what that has to do with well, my. Well, you'd be hitting seven hundred. You, you would. No, 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 7%. 700 is 70%. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So you would not be an Italian. Hold it. But I'm still hitting 28% Scandinavian. (laughs) 
and 20 percent uh, British. See, now 28 percent, that would be a 280, 280 batting average. So, yeah, yeah, you'd be a Scandinavian. But here's the deal. Average. That, but but that little bit of that little bit of not Greek, an award winning. But it's you're not. You're a below average. Yeah. I've actually two eighties. You're, you're a journeyman. You're one of those guys. They stick right in the middle of the batting order. Just yeah, well, they have to put you somewhere because you're good in the outfield. Solid as a rock. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I'm sorry. Anyway, um, I digress, and I don't know why that came up during our Nutella discussion. Mm. By the way, speaking good. of good, good to good to know. My roots. Solid as a rock. Yeah. Arrested Development. Jeffrey Tambor, who yeah. played the patriarch well, of that on. family. Well, why are we talking about this? Because he's the the newest target in these sexual harassment Boy, allegations. There, there's a lot, aren't there? They're, they're going after one everybody. By one by one. But you know what? Honestly, if these are all true, this is something we need to be talking about. Right? I mean, even if half of them are true, this is – there's been a lot of abuse. Stuff, stuff. <sighs> Let's get to a happier subject. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna be visiting an interview, probably one of my favorite interviews of all time. A friend of mine, a veteran, will be uh, will will be replaying an interview I did with him about his tour in Vietnam. And boy, oh boy, it's incredible the stories. These are the stories I heard as a Boy Scout. And uh, it made me realize how lucky we are to live in America. This is the Matt Townsend Show, getting you ready for Veterans Day for this, uh, this weekend. How better to do it than actually talking to a veteran? That's up next. This weekend is Veterans Day. It is a day uh, that America remembers the soldiers who have served our country. If there's anyone who knows this uh, and that about that experience firsthand, it's my friend T. Herschel. He served as a medic in Vietnam and, unfortunately, all too often, was the last person to look into the eyes of a critically injured soldier as they left this world. Uh, a couple of years ago, he sat down and talked with me about his experiences. We begin the interview about his childhood and the events leading up to the beginning of the Vietnam War. I grew up in a, in a patriotic home. My dad didn't serve because his age was between things. He was too young for World War II and too old for Korea. Mm. So we didn't ever serve in the military, but like the 4th of July was the biggest holiday for us. We celebrated that in a big way, and he taught us to respect the flag and love our country. And so that's the way I was reared. Neat. I got into high school, and by then we were, we were full bore in Vietnam. Uh, November 1965, I, I think I've got my dates right. November 65, President Johnson sent the 1st Infantry Division on a, on a huge ship, sent him into, uh, into probably Cameron Bay. Mm. And that was the first official um, combat unit that was in Vietnam. Prior to that, we were you know, advisors, whatever that right. meant. Visitors. And, and it, it's, it's interesting to me that that 1st unit was the 1st Infantry Division because that's the unit I ended up being assigned to when I got there. So this was in the end of 65, and six or seven months later, in June of 66, I graduated from high school. I immediately enrolled at the University of Utah. And back then, this, this was before the lottery. Hmm. So the law was you registered for the draft at 18, and when you were 19, you got drafted. It wasn't a matter of, you know, my, my, my number was drawn way into the series, so I'm safe. Yeah. When you were 19, you got your letter. However, 
you could get a deferment for a lot of things. If you were 4F and physically unfit, you you didn't have to go. Uh, if you were 1S, which I think meant you were 18 years old and you'd registered, but you were still in high school, so you were safe then. Or if you were a sole surviving son or you had a job that was critical to the community, those were all things for which you could get a deferment. One of the deferments, called a 2S deferment, was you were enrolled in a college program and you had a, a specific number of hours and you had good grades. And I, I had that. I had really good grades. You were shooting for that. Yeah. <laughs> but I had these really good grades. And I, I think I could have set out the war. I think I probably could have done just fine, just keep registering and get my education and be safe. Oh, wow. But my heart wouldn't let me do that. Interesting. I had a bunch of friends that I graduated with that had, had listed right after, right out of high school, guys that I'd, you know, I'd known since the fourth grade. And we had this little newsletter that came out in our community every week that talked about had pictures of all these guys that were serving that had been either wounded or killed. So I'm seeing pictures of my friends that lost an arm or lost a leg or too often lost their lives because they were over there fighting for my freedom and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And after my first year, I finished my freshman year and I just couldn't deal with it anymore. So before it came time to sign up for my sophomore year, I went down and visited with the recruiter and I got him to make me two promises. He promised me that I could be trained as a medical corpsman. And he promised me that I could go to Vietnam. So I signed up, and in uh, September of 67, I went to Fort Lewis, Washington for my basic training, and uh-huh. then after that, down to Fort Sam Houston, Texas for medical training. And in February of 68, I think the specific day was the 25th, I landed. We were on a World Airways jet out of Oakland, California, and we landed at Quinion Airfield in uh-huh. Vietnam. It was right in the middle of the Tet Offensive. Oh, my word. Which was the biggest offensive yeah. of the war. They were celebrating the Chinese New Year or something like that. And the buildup was huge and more casualties than at any other time in the war. That's when we landed, and we actually took fire as we were, <laughs> we were getting off the jet. Welcome, welcome. to Vietnam. So, that, yeah, that was my welcome. Yeah, I was kind of hoping for one of those Hawaii lays. In the yeah, kids, you didn't get a Hawaii lay. But I, I didn't get any of that. So I, I got my assignment ended up with the 1st Infantry Division, 1st Battalion, 26th Infantry. Bravo Company, November Platoon, and uh, I was ready to go. Hmm. So I, I I got my first Eagle flight. I, I went in, and, and I was given all of my equipment, a bag to carry stuff in, and I filled it up with bandages and salt tablets and antibiotics and morphine and, and uh, hemostats and scalpels, all the stuff I might need as I got out there and had to take patch people up and take care of their lives. I got my M16, which I didn't keep for very long. <laughs> But I went out with the rest of my troop for an Eagle flight. Now, what an Eagle flight is w- was the means of transportation to get us from one place to another in the jungle. And basically what it was is we'd go out to a, a bunch of cement pads. As I recall, there were six or eight of them. And we'd stand on one of those landing pads and helicopters would come in. You could look up in the sky and you'd hear the, you know, the beep, beep, beep yeah. of the rotors, see these helicopters coming in. And a Huey would come down and hover about a foot off the ground and four or five of us would jump in it. It would take off, and then the next one would come in, and four or wow. five people would jump in it. And that's how we got to where we were going. I was on this, this Huey with four other guys, five of us, plus the pilot, the crew chief, and the door gunner. So there were, what, eight of us on there. And I didn't know where we were going. I was, you know, I was high new. enough to have a need to know. <laughs> a greenie. Yeah, I was, <laughs> even after I wasn't green, I still didn't, right. wasn't important enough to know. What I did know was that it would take us about half an hour to get to wherever we were going, and I knew that it was a hot LZ. Now, LZ means landing zone, and hot means there's combat going on there. That's the reason we were going out, was to reinforce the troops that were in the middle of a firefight. So uh. the, the likelihood, the probability was like near one 
Then when we got at the other end, people were going to be shooting at us. Were you terrified? Or at what? first, I was. Uh, I was terrified. I was. I was shaking. I could, you know, I'm remembering it still, and I could barely hold still in my seat. I just wanted to get oh, out. Oh my word! Uh, I was. I was 19 years old. First yeah. time I'd ever been away from home, and uh, and, and I remembered what we were taught in in our basic training. Now, I don't know if it was true because these drill instructors would tell us all kinds of stuff to motivate us. <laughs> yeah. But I remember one drill instructor when we were in our jungle training after I finished my Fort Sam Houston medical stuff, he said, if you're going into a hot LZ, you got an 80% mortality statistic. 80% of you are going to be dead. Again, I don't know if that was true or not. Oh, my word. But I can tell you I believed it. Yeah, for sure. And I was looking at these other four guys. There were five of us that were going to get off at the other end. And, you know, I hadn't known them for a long time. A couple of them a day or two. A few of them went through training together, so I'd known them for six months. But there's something about the war that causes these instant friendships. And I, I really cared for these guys. And I sat there thinking, in, in half an hour, these four friends of mine are going to be dead. Wow. And then I had this thought that kind of reached down and grabbed my heart and stood me up. You know, maybe it'll be me. And that's when I really started to to be terrified, I guess. Yeah. And I started to think about my life. You know, you hear about your life flashing. Yeah. It did. I remember it all the way back. And and, and I, what I really remembered that surprised me was I had taken, in school, I had taken a lot of religious training, seminary we called it, and I'd learned a lot of scriptures. And the way I remembered that experience was I'd read the scripture because I had to, and I'd pass the test, and then I'd forget about it. Well, suddenly I was remembering all these scriptures. Oh, wow. And one of them that came to me was in Matthew, I think the 10th chapter, and it, it talks about, don't fear who can destroy the body. Be afraid of he who can destroy the body and soul in hell. Oh, and once I thought about that, it, it was like this peace came over me. And, and I, I, I was no longer, it wasn't like I didn't think I was going to die. It was like it didn't matter. I knew that I was there for a good purpose. I was doing the right thing. Right. And I, I realized that I tried my whole life to live the way I should have, and I was more successful than less successful, and it, I just wasn't worried anymore. So we got to the other end, and the helicopters went down to ground level, two or three feet off the ground, and the idea was you stand up in a doorway, and you jump out, and then the next guy jumps out, and as soon as the helicopter's empty, it takes off. Well, I, st I was the second one standing in a doorway, and the guy in front of me was this huge guy, six foot four and like four feet across, and <clears throat> as soon as he stood up, he took a, a round in his forehead. Oh. and fell forward. And I just reflexively grabbed him, and the weight of his body pulled us both out of the helicopter. And the chopper lurched up a few feet, and it was hit by an incendiary round, and it exploded. Oh, my and, word. And, and everybody died. And I realized in, in that second that I was the statistic. I was the 20%. You're it. You, know, it really, you made really the first happen. round. The rest of them were gone, and, and I was there. So that was my introduction to Vietnam, and over the next 18 months, that experience with variations here and there was repeated over and over. We're talking to a friend of mine, Terry Herschel, who was a medic during the Vietnam War. Now, I had an M16 when I first <clears throat> got there, and after about a week, I think, I, I killed somebody. And I, I, still, I, remember, I remember it in slow motion. Mm -hmm. And, and he, I was behind him, and I shot off. I saw the back of his head come off, and he was a kid, mm. a little boy, you know, maybe 15. And he, I knew he's got a mom and dad at home and, and brothers and sisters that look up to him, and they'll never see him again. And it's because of me. And it, it, it tore me to pieces. I, I'm still emotional 44 years later. 
So uh, I, I got rid of my M16 because medics didn't have to carry them, and that allowed me to carry twice as much in terms of medical yeah. stuff. So for the rest of the time, I did what you just said. I, I, I hang, hang out with the boys. I didn't need a gun because they protected me. Yeah. And when somebody was wounded, I'd stop and I'd patch them up and call in the dust-off helicopters to take them back to the hospital and move on to the next one. Oh, my word. Well, and what a move to give up your gun. I mean, I guess it it was for you, wasn't it? It's just easier. To, it might be easier to die than uh, to have I to had, take another one. I had no trouble at all giving up that weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I bet it was just peace. And, I, and, and I'll tell you, I, when I took that life, it happened, that happened twice. The, the second time was, was with a knife, but I'll, I'll probably talk about that because it had an impact on, on my life and the way I thought. But when I took that life, the, the feelings that I had were overwhelming, and, and I couldn't believe that I, I did that. I didn't yeah. feel guilty because of the circumstances, but I was appalled at what human beings do to each other. And what really bothered me even more than that was the dehumanizing effect that the war had on so many people, friends yeah. of mine, that were great guys in every respect, except that killing didn't bother them. As a matter of fact, they were proud of it. They'd keep a body count, and they'd make little marks on the stock of their of their weapons to keep track of how many people they killed. And I, I, I could not... I still can't fathom yeah. that. Yeah, what is that? You know, well, I can't I even shoot a deer anymore. Because so. we have... We're sending all these men into war and women into war, and we don't we don't quite think of that, do we? We don't. We don't. And you know what? So many people think of is they're the enemy, and and they're right. Yeah, they're the enemy. But why are they there? They're there for the same reason I was. They believe in a cause. They believe in their country. They have family. They love people. Yeah. They love their kids. They love their parents. They want to try and protect them. Mm-hmm. Whether or not their cause is right, that's for the right. other people to argue about. But he's just like me, and. Yeah. Yeah, it was either him or me, but and I'm and I'm glad it ended up to be him. But another part of me is very, very sad. Well, there's a cost, isn't there? There's a very, a very profound cost, and it doesn't go away. That's what. That's true. That's what we're seeing is, as they're all coming back with PTSD and yeah, that's right, post traumatic stress disorder. I mean, it's it's you made it through. I mean, that, that, there's day one, and then you gave your gun up. How soon? A week later. About a week later, you're yeah. giving your gun up. Yeah. So within a week, you're already having to take a life. That's right. And about three days after that, I received my first wound. Oh, my word. And right. this was a really interesting one because I don't know if it was a bullet or, or a piece of shrapnel because we never found it. But it came in the front of my helmet. And it came on an angle, so it was deflected. And, and th- this was just a remarkable thing. It's impossible for this to have happened, but it did. It, it penetrated my skin, but it didn't penetrate the skull. And it was deflected and went all the way around the left side of my head and came out the back and came out through the helmet. So if you took the helmet, you saw a hole in the front and a hole in the back. Holy cow. So you, thought, oh. you should have had a, a so, Man, this guy, this guy bought the farm. But the fact was I didn't even take out a lease on the farm. I, I had a terrible migraine for a few days and some bleeding that I treated myself. And on the left side of my head, my hair all fell out. And it took you know a few weeks for it to grow back. But that was it. I mean, wow. <laughs> so that was the first wound that I received. So you're, and, and that was three days in. It, it was about eight, eight days in. It eight was three days, days after, after the, I turned in my weapon. Oh, my word. Yeah. Incredible. Um, so then it was an, uh, the, the second time I was wounded, and this was, this was a long time later. I mean, I, maybe it was the last time I was wounded. I was wounded three times. This was probably the third time because it was months, months later. Um, I was. We were in a firefight, and I stopped and was kneeling down taking care of our wounded. And 
it, this, it wasn't like the movies you see of World War II where there's a definite front. We were in the jungle. Yeah, you were and, everywhere. And I might be here, and there's some enemy over there on the other side of them is some more of our guys. We're just all mixing it up together. So I was on my knees treating this wounded GI, and I, I heard the bush crack behind me, and I turned around, and I saw a VC, a Viet Cong. And he had his rifle, and he was running at me. It turned out the rifle was a little sawed-off 410-gauge shotgun. Oh, my word. And I grabbed the barrel of it to pull it away from him. And I, in the process of doing that, I pulled the barrel down into my thigh and it went off. I got a big hole about the size of a quarter <laughs> in my left thigh. And it, it, but it didn't hit any blood vessels and it didn't hit any bones. And I still have all of the, all of the, uh, all of the, the shot, shot. bird shot in there. And every time I have my knees x-rayed, you know. They're like, look at your leg. I have to explain what happened. Holy cow. So anyway, I threw the weapon away, and he came at me with a knife, and it was it was a long knife. I wrestled it away, and I— I mean, you're a big—you're not big, but I, you're bigger than I was a, a lot Viet Cong. Than, a lot bigger than a Viet Cong, and he was, again, was a, was a young boy. Oh, man. I wrestled the knife away, and I, I pinned him to the ground through his throat, and in the process, it— severed his jugular vein and his carotid artery. And I think it may have nicked his spinal cord too, but that didn't matter because with both of those blood vessels in, he was uh, dead. in, in moments, he exsanguinated and was gone. And, and and again, I had the same thoughts. Wow. You know, I, I thought about his mom and dad at home and they're never going to see him again. Yeah. It, it, that part of Vietnam was just a killer for me. I'm glad I only had to experience that twice. We're talking to a friend of mine, Terry Herschel, who was a medic during the Vietnam War. He shared with me the pain he felt when a close friend was killed and how or even if a soldier can say goodbye. In the moment, you don't. You just don't have a chance. There's just too much too much happening, too much going on. And people have often asked me, were you, were you afraid? And the answer that I can say is not because of any bravery on my part. I, I was never afraid when we were in a firefight. You had a job to do and you did it. You were busy. You you just went about the tasks that had to be done, and you did them. Leading up to it in anticipation or thinking about it afterwards, yeah. there was plenty of time to be afraid, and I was a lot. Yeah. And in answer to your question, after the firefight was over, after we'd sent what was left of his body back, um, I had time to think about it. And again, it's been 44 years, but I believe I remember weeping, mm. uh, thinking about, about him, and, and even more than that, thinking about his bride, that he'd married, I think, a week before he came, and and he was gone now. And that, that was very heart-wrenching for me. We don't get it, do we? we yeah. It's, we don't it's get true. what you've all been through. It's true. Powerful. Uh, a few years later, a few years ago, I, I went to uh, Washington to the Vietnam Wall, which was a, a profoundly moving experience I for bet. me. And, and I went and I looked up all of the guys that I knew that I had fought with yeah. and many of whom had died in my arms yeah. and I took I took uh, what do you call them like, oh, rubbings, uh, the rubbings rubbings of their names yeah. and I've, I've got those in a scrapbook somewhere but I, I, I specifically looked up Stephen was it it seems like medic is a, a, it's like a chaplain almost it's kind of an honorable I mean you're there at a very private personal time they're battling to live and I mean I'm sure you're just saving their lives but to know that they're dying in your arms what's yeah. that like um, what do you say? What do you do in that moment? You, you, I don't know. <laughs> just, I, I, I don't know how to answer that. You, you just you just hold them and treat them and and wipe their their brow off and, and wait for it to, for them to pass. Mm. Um, That's an honor. 
I, I felt very honored to have that opportunity. You know, yeah. they, they, they called me Doc. A lot of them didn't even know my name. So, <laughs> You're just the redheaded and talk. I, and I was glad because, you know, I didn't <laughs> want people to call me Terry. Right. Uh, but uh, it turns out that I didn't need the weapon because, you know, if I wanted a moment of privacy too bad, I, 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 they wouldn't let me go anywhere without somebody. Right. They're going to have to watch someone. me and take care of me. And, and I, felt, I felt honored by that. That's great. I was glad I had the opportunity to serve in that. Uh, T. Herschel is his name. And uh, truly a hero to me, one of the greats, uh, I truly believe. And the reason I wanted to replay that interview with T. Herschel is let's be very, very real about what these soldiers have done and what they're still doing over in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Um, Especially Vietnam, they didn't get the welcome home. They didn't get the praise from people. um, And they they didn't get – they didn't get maybe the recognition they need. So why don't we give it to them now by celebrating and honoring them this Veterans Day, this weekend. When you see somebody that's served, uh, no matter where they've served in the military, get out there and uh, thank them for and, and show them your appreciation for what they've given and been willing to give to this country. Uh, up next, we'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Our goal is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives And especially this weekend to help you get prepared to truly uh, thank your, uh, your God above for the great blessings of living in such a wonderful country. Welcome back, friends. You know... There's nothing more constant than change, and uh, it seems like there's been nothing more constant in the tech world than the change of emojis. Yes, there was a, uh, what was it, Google last week had a thing about, they had a hamburger emoji, and people were fighting over, in the emoji, should the cheese be on top of the meat or under the meat? Oh, well, it depends on if you have multiple patties. There's just one patty in the emoji. Ah, you still put it on top, right? Of course. That's well, like an American. You need it to melt around and give that meat patty a big cheesy hug. Then, of course, because they're a fun company, they had a barbecue for all the employees, and they had both burgers, and they were trying to see which burger would be. Yeah. You know, eaten the more of. Do we know which one? Won? I don't know what the outcome of that scientific study was. Here we barbecued, yeah. and then people ate more hamburgers with cheese on top of. Yeah. You know. Have you but, ever decided? But if you just flip the burger, just flip, flip it, it over, over it's, it's the same thing. Okay, just checking. But that's a study I'd I'd love to be a part of. <laughs> we don't ever have studies like that on campus. Well, here. Kiko offered to do some cooking for you on the show, and you turned him down. This is true. Yeah, but it's poi. Yeah. Poi with like a spam. Yeah, poi spam mixture. Yeah, I don't know. Not the same. So uh, Apple put out their uh, data that they have because, you know, they can look at what you're doing on your phone to a certain extent. There's some information they receive. And they, uh, the most popular emoji. Yeah. What do you think it is? Well, uh, I'm sure just the smiley face. No. How about the smiley face, squinted eyes? Happy, so happy, your squinting face. Thumbs up? No. High five. The most popular emoji is, no, face with tears of joy. Yeah, I was going to say that. (laughs) Right there. That's the most popular one. Really? Yeah. So you got the smiley face. Is that what that means? I thought you were laughing so hard you were crying. What's what I mean? Tears of joy. You're crying because it's funny. Oh. Tears of joy. 
I thought the tears of joy to me means you have this pleasant, joyful feeling, not yeah. necessarily laughing, but mm, there's no. tears. What no. if that person has a tear duct issue? Yeah. What if you just what yeah, what if you just so got says pink the, eye? The figure is stuck between sobbing and laughing and is equally perfect for expressing the soaring highs of life and the depressing lows of life. Huh. Really? Don't use said. that emoji on Facebook whenever somebody shares the info that somebody in their family died. Yeah, don't use that one. Yeah. Yeah. People think that's just Tears you know, of joy. Sad tear, but no. He's this is smiling. the problem with emojis: is yeah. you don't always know what they mean. My wife was complaining the other night that someone sent out some message to her, and she's like, oh, "I'm not sure what this means. These emojis don't really—they don't talk to me." Yeah, so it's the most popular emoji among English-speaking iOS and Mac users in the U.S., according to Apple, which published the chart showing the top emoji usage on all its devices. The reveal comes from a somewhat unexpected place—an overview about how Apple collects. On a data user data and analytics in iOS, which people start, you know, getting concerned about their privacy. In this case, figuring out which emoji users uh, type the most can help the company better or suggest better for their in their use because it gives you that predictive yeah, yeah. Uh, data as you're typing. So they're saying we can use this data as people, all the people are using it, and we can suggest emojis and all kinds of stuff. But uh, so it's not just Apple singing the praises of faces um, or face with tears of joy, though. Other emoji tracking metrics like the site Emoji Tracker, which <laughs> monitors real-time emoji use across Twitter, has the uh, humble emoji as the number one position across the entire social media site by a fairly massive margin. So wow, if you know what that is. That's no. the other thing. All these emojis have names. And yeah. I'm like, I don't know what they are. But we should have to, seen the emoji movie, I guess. Oh, interesting. So according to Apple, these are the top emojis. Hearts. So the heart's number two. The crying face is three. Heart eyes is four. Heart kiss is five. <laughs> these are my definitions, by the way. Yeah. Weird eyes, like looking up, is six. And then skull is, is seven. So mm, there, there is an. Em- I don't use many of those. There is an emoji consortium. I'm not sure if that's the exact name of it, yeah. but it's a international body that governs emojis. <laughs> how they're wouldn't you like defined, to look at those guys? I, guess. I bet they look funny. And they get there's a lot of fights out there they're because all... people want their emojis to be specific. Yeah, so. and they had to have a taco one because yeah. they had yeah. You got to do it. Uh, so there you go. Tears or fate? What is it officially? Face with tears of joy is the number one. Wouldn't it be? Faster to just write in one or two words what you're trying to say instead of like yeah. file it, like yeah. trying to go through all yeah. these different emotions. Laughing my eyes out. Yeah. Or what have you. Tears of joy. I think it's the uh, the codified language. If you mm-hmm. if you know, then you know type of concept that people like about it. So yeah. yeah. I find it confusing, but maybe that's it's, my uh, age group it, it, yeah, screaming at the yeah. uh, situation. And it's your age group that's causing all this mayhem. Could be. Uh, up next, we're going to be doing a, a, just a little love story for you. Uh, a former Navy SEAL gets in a car accident. We're going to talk about uh, how his wife is slowly bringing him back to life and to health. A uh, great love story straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. If you don't believe in love, then you've got to hear this story. Um, we'll post uh, a link to their um, 
their Instagram feed. But the story is about a 36-year-old SEAL named Jonathan Grant who was in a car accident in the United States that left him in a coma with brain injuries. His wife is 32-year-old Laura Browning Grant. She had to leave her home in North Carolina to go be by his side, and now she is sticks a, around with him every day in his rehab facility for up to 10 hours a day, helping him to relearn simple things like standing. Uh, she helped him. She There's a great video out there of her like teasing him with a kiss to get him to walk uh, and do some of the exercises that he's supposed to be doing. Um, she It's just it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen of uh, – uh, a loving wife caring for her husband, and you can only imagine how hard it is. But but look them up on Instagram. Look them up on our at uh, Doctor Matt Show uh, Twitter feed because I I want you to see what true love looks like and the power of of a strong relationship. I also want you to celebrate the fact that Jonathan was also a Navy SEAL and was willing to uh, again serve for this country, work for this country. And um, and and now is is needing some prayers and some help from the rest of us. So uh, we'll post that on our tweet on our Twitter feed at Dr. Matt show. And let's remember life is good. You are blessed to be where you are, no matter how uh, difficult the world seems. Um, there are others that are struggling even more, and they also need your prayers as well. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend show. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Jeffrey Liam Simpson and Terry South. The gang is gathered. It's post uh, election night, so we have to get into all of the um, all of the wins, the losses, not a lot to talk about. I'm curious to know, too, do you feel, is it not as much of an experience if you mail in your ballot versus like going to a cafeteria yeah, or a library? Yeah. Really? Yeah, because I, I, in a way, it was a very pleasant experience. But I actually had a really magical moment because my kids saw me voting. Mm. So we could talk about what, why we're voting, how we're voting. It created a really interesting discussion. Now, it didn't create the same civic engagement. You know, I didn't hmm. get to go smell the the smell of like two day old fries in the cafeteria of, of my children's school. Yeah. But and I didn't get to see everybody that I would normally see there. But I did get to have a really great moment with my family. I remember voting for president and going to a school cafeteria there were no partitions or anything. There were just people sitting on tables, checking, putting down a check really? mark. Just, yeah. a, just a kind of a free for all. Yeah, is or, that is that? Or maybe you, that was the that may have been the primaries. I, or maybe Could've, that was when you were in grade school choosing a class president. And for some reason, I was using a crayon. Yeah, yeah. That, okay. Sometimes our memories fail us. That was a tasty crayon, though. <laughs> Is that why you've got purple on your teeth? Uh, today we got a great uh, show. We're going to we're going to talk about so many things, but apparently a sweep in in of some sort. I mean, I don't know if you call it a sweep. CNN is saying the Democrats swept the election, but really there were hmm. maybe three or four or five really well known elections 
across the country, and most of them seem to go Democrat. So it's all blue, folks. There's a blue sweep. Uh, apparently, according to the news, GOP, you're done. You may as well. Okay. Well, it's probably not that dire. But it did. It does say something about President Trump. The the big election was the governor's race in Virginia, and Gillespie, who's a GOP kind of stronghold, lost to the Democratic uh, challenger. And interestingly, Northam was the challenger, I believe, in uh, Virginia. Was it close? I don't think so. It was polling around three percent. Ended up being nine percent. Yeah. Ah, surprise! But that it was. It's a very telling problem that uh, Gillespie ran into because he wanted to kind of run a little bit on Trump's coattails, but not have Trump in the coat. Sure. You know, so it's it's kind of jumping on the bandwagon. But, hey, there ain't no band. So we never (laughs) invited Trump to come hang out. He didn't let Trump. I mean, by the way, this is in Virginia. This would have just been a little, you know. This could have just been a really quick helicopter ride to wherever he needed to go. But uh, Trump wasn't part of the election, except a lot of Trump's ideas that got him elected were part of Gillespie's platform. That's like somebody wanting to use their parents' name to further their career, but they don't want their parents to be involved. Yeah. Do you, do you want me to make a call? No, 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 Dad. Stay out of this, but I do want you to just, you know, let me drop your name. <laughs> Well, if you want, I'll just make a call. No, Dad, I really don't want you to talk to anybody. I want to do this on my own. Just, I just want to be able to – can I just say I did this? Well, it would be easier if I just called – Dad, stay out of it. No, but son, I can tell him a lot about how you used to wet your bed, how you used to do all these things, and now you've outgrown all of it. And you'd be a great employee now. Dad, never mind. I'm just going to – I'm going to change my name. I'm going to change my name now. So – Interesting. You know, elections, they matter. And hopefully you were involved at whatever level. Um, and is this a real, you know, swing for the Democrats? No matter what, it is kind of a moral victory. Um, a lot of elections uh, just are more about what you perceive is going on. And so interesting stuff. We'll get to all of that. Plus, later, we're going to be talking about why it's important as Veterans Day is coming up this Saturday, why it's important to know your veterans. And we have a, a great guest that will be joining us that is making a big difference in the world of veterans. Veterans have one of the highest suicide rates around. Mm. Uh, I think 20 percent of suicides are veterans in this country. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't necessarily make sense. But it, it, some of this may go back to the, the mere fact of how we, uh, how we enlist people into the military, right? It's, it's all by volunteer. And uh, many are saying if we didn't – if we had a draft instead, we would probably A, take better care of our veterans. We would probably also B, fight fewer wars. If your brother or you could get called up to go to war or your son could go to war, you might be less into war. But I don't know that – I mean these are the people that are volunteering to go and 20 percent of suicides are, are veterans. Yeah. So I wonder what that number would look like if, if it were people that were just being drafted against their will. Absolutely. And well, what's interesting though is I wonder if we'd have fewer wars. The data actually shows that we would. We probably wouldn't be involved in as many wars because these are your kids. Hmm. But when it's someone else's kids and you don't even relate to these people because these people aren't your friends – 
These people aren't in your social groups. These people don't go to your church, and you may not know very many people currently enlisted in the military. Then it might be easier to send them to war. It definitely make uh, war more real for everybody. Oh, it's a scary idea, but it also is a it, you know it might be a very real uh, issue as more and more people are taking on the idea of the draft. So we'll talk about that and really try to do what we can to celebrate veterans um, and just at least give them the tribute they need. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else is going on that we should be paying attention to? President Donald Trump on Wednesday pulled back on a trip to the demilitarized zone that separates South Korea from North Korea, citing inclement weather, according to Politico. Trump was on board a helicopter heading towards the DMZ when the decision was made to turn back due to Uh. poor weather. The effort shows the strong and importance uh, of the alliance between the two countries, the White House press secretary says. The effort to what? Go to the DMZ? Yeah. It was cliche last week. Okay. Yeah, it was cliche. Um, And now it's not. And now he's mad that he couldn't get there. Yeah. Uh, Journalists traveling with Trump were asked not to report on the president's travels until after he returned to Seoul. On Tuesday, Trump apparently teased the trip, saying we're going to have an exciting day tomorrow for many reasons that people will find out when it, after, or as it happens. Trump teased. He didn't say that, but I had the last part. What? And the reports say it was foggy, so they pulled back. And he, if you, I mean, if you can't see the guard towers that are like 50, 100 yards yeah. away, you may want to, you know. You know you know how bad it would be if you crashed at the DMZ? There, there are towers. You can, There's pictures of James Mattis, the defense yeah. secretary, standing there last week and He's talking to his counterpart from South Korea, and in between them, kind of over their shoulders, you see two North Korean guys in a guard tower just yeah. looking at him. Yeah. So, I mean, they're right there. So you may be worried for some con- you know, security concerns. But if, I guess it goes down to the fact that, I mean, you could have taken the Trump bus. Could have. When we could have got him there. There's a way to get him everywhere. Yeah. But, I mean, it may also be just visibility at the yeah. site. Yeah. They can't see where the North Koreans are. Do so, they yeah, have a gun? It, would, it wouldn't have been a great... Op, but visual. Too. Yeah, picture's right. bad. So, who knows? Whatever. Uh, Defense Secretary James Mattis has directed the Pentagon to investigate how the Air Force failed to report to the FBI that the Texas church shooter had been convicted of assaulting his wife. And then, of course, that information didn't make it to the FBI database. And they're like, if the problem is we didn't put something out, we'll correct it. Hmm. So they're looking at their procedures to see what happened, what was the failure, how do we fix this? Yes. Okay. And well. apparently they're going to look back, as I was talking yesterday about all people who have been removed from the military because of domestic violence, are they in the database? Because you should be. You better be. That's the way it works. Well, or really anybody charged with anything in the military, right? I mean, all of this information needs to be somewhere filter out. So it can be seen in the public when you go to check a database. Yeah. It's kind of important background information. Attorney General Jeff Sessions will appear in front of the House Judiciary Committee panel on November 14th, where he's expected to face questions about communications between the Russian government and the pre- and President Trump's election campaign. Now, this isn't a repeat of the couple other times he's had to go in and talk about this. Because remember, he yeah. first talked about it, then he had to come back and talk about it. I thought it. he cleared it up. No, now he's got to go back. Because um, they're saying here, uh, in March, the Washington Post reported that during his confirmation hearing, Session failed to disclose two meetings he had with the Russian ambassador to the United States. And uh, other documents filed October 30th by Special Counsel Robert Mueller revealed that Sessions attended a meeting where he shot down the proposed meeting between then-candidate Trump and Vladimir Putin. Hmm. Again, all stuff he didn't disclose when he was confirmed as in his confirmation hearings as the attorney general. So well, but, the Senate's like, yeah. come on back here. Talk to us some more. Maybe the senators just didn't ask very good questions. No, they asked him, have you, have you had any contact or are you aware of any contact with Russians? 
What, what are you talking about, Russians? He's like, what? No, absolutely not. And a week later, like, whoa. And then someone's like, the, the ambassador from Russia to the United States yeah, yeah. is a Russian. What? Yeah. It's a crazy Since concept. When? So. He didn't say anything. <laughs> Surprise. I now, mean, granted, a couple of these meetings, he was shaking hands, shook no, someone's hand, that. and walked out the no, door. You, you totally get that. You could you could miss a Russian in a room. Yeah. When you got 50 Russian, when I, you got 50 people in a room, and then one of them's a Russian. I think you could pick out the Russian. But they're not always going to wear, like, the big furry bear hat. You know, they're not. No. So. Waving flags. Okay, yeah. so, so that would make sense once. But when you've actually sat in meetings at tables with them. Ah. And then shot down ideas for meetings that were cap- were being set up, and yeah. you said, no, let's stop that. And they kept mentioning Vlad. To a guy that was indicted by Robert Mueller. The campaign were like, who's that guy? Didn't he get us, like, yeah. coffee or something? What was his job? Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. In other news, a juror in the Senate, Robert Menendez, he's a Democrat from New Jersey who's under uh, uh, accused of taking bribes from a Florida doctor. So he's being uh, corruption trial ongoing. One of the jurors yesterday, uh, you know, they asked for questions from the jurors. Do you have any questions before we start deliberations? And the juror raised his hand and goes, could you define what a senator is? What? Yeah. (laughs) Are you serious? The the judge had, and he also asked for a transcript of the Menendez attorney's closing arguments. So the senator's attorney's closing arguments. The judge told the jurors they should use their memory to determine the definition of a senator. You that's, keep that's using corru- this word senator. <laughs> that's how that corruption trial is going. Menendez is not a good surname to have in a courtroom. Yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah. That name was ruined. But, but good if like NBC wants to make a TV show. Yeah, it's great for TV ratings. <laughs> really right bad now. for <laughs> juries. Okay. And finally, uh, how big are you on ranch dressing, Matt? Oh, Are you a big fan? I'm a, bi- I, I'm a fan. How, I wouldn't say a how, big fan. Big a fan. I'm probably a, on the fan meter. I'm a Are seven. you? Uh, let's buy a keg of no. a keg of ranch for your home. Well, I like to have ranch on tap. If you're asking me that, <gasps> I just so, showed Matt the photo. So of people the, can now buy a keg of ranch. It is a mini keg, a metal barrel looking a device. Keg. It's a keg. It's a nine by six inches, so nine inches tall, six inches, <laughs> I guess, diameter. Um, it can hold 12 bottles of ranch. Wow. When you purchase this item, they send you the barrel empty with 12 <laughs> bottles of ranch that you, then you can add as you yeah. wish. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you got to keep topping it off. Yeah. So it, the whole thing, I believe, what, what did I see? It says it holds two pounds of dressing, goes for $110. Including a year's supply of ranch, which I guess is a bottle a month, is For what who? they're assuming. Well, not if you have a keg. Like if you're buying that much ranch, I think you're going to overindulge on. And by ranch. the way, don't you have to keep the keg in the fridge? Don't you? You have to. Do you have to? Yeah, you have to. Once you open it. the bottle, you have yeah. to refrigerate your keg. So then the problem: where, where do you put a nine by six? Hey Jimmy. I don't know. Hey Jimmy, you want to come over to my house for a kegger? Bring some celery sticks. Bring <laughs> some celery sticks. <laughs> so crazy. you could tap the keg, right? And then you have ranch on tap. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, let's let's go to uh, Jim Gaffigan to find out what he thinks of this. Ranch dressing. Some of us have to settle down with the ranch dressing. <laughs> the usage is ridiculous. I love ranch dressing. I like to dip my pizza in ranch dressing. That's fine. You're just not allowed to vote anymore. How f- 
fitting is that's that? a good trade. And today you can't you you shouldn't be voting if you're going to be dipping everything in ranch. Right. And I think this would encourage you to dip more in ranch. I agree. But there are things you hear about pizza, vegetables, uh-huh. but I think people just start experimenting. You have so much ranch on hand. <laughs> yeah, then and you're just you, a big dip. And it says they, the whole point is we want to ensure the ranch. Yeah, dip. Got you it. finally got them. We want to ensure the ranch is as fresh as possible so people can fill their kegs when they are ready for their parties. So this is intended for like a party situation. Okay, but seriously? But no one's going to use it for that. Yeah, who's going to go through nine bottles of ranch at a party? My three-year-old. Because, yeah, your three-year-old will just hold the keg top down and just pour ranch all over the floor. She'll put her mouth underneath yeah. it. That's what my, my boy, when there's ranch, he'll, like, eat the ranch and leave everything else. that they, Or, like, yeah. he's, like, taking the ranch off the carrot and putting the carrot away because he doesn't want to have anything to do with the carrot. Yeah. But it was a delivery system for the ranch. Okay, but look what we're doing. Last hour we talked about e-cigs okay. and how dangerous they are. Right. A keg of ranch is just as dangerous as an e-cig. Is it, though? But, yeah, but you wouldn't be walking out of like a jazz game with it, somebody with a keg on their shoulder drinking it. It's made with drinking it. probably something adjacent to a dairy product. So there's some Buttermilk? Health... Yeah. Plus, just yes. the, the, the burn factor of that much weight behind buttermilk ranch dressing it's going to create a burn effect and now you're going to have burnt i think jim gaffigan goes on to say that ranch is made from buttermilk and sadness Mm. (laughs) i don't think it's it's happiness it it does nothing but create joy that's why it's addictive and a keg of ranch is a bad idea I don't want to ruin it for everybody else. Or it could be a great idea. Just go to Costco, buy their mega super ranch size, get one of those a month, and go find a hobby. (laughs) At the Hobby Lobby. (laughs) Interesting. Anyway, great news. So you're uh, not really for the keg of ranch? I just think no. I think it's a health hazard. I think if you're going to buy it, you have to post a health warning on the keg of A ranch. Surgeon General warning mm-hmm. on the ranch. Yeah. Okay. And again, I can only imagine what kind of parties that would bring on. Can you imagine this? Just all these little overweight kids dipping their pizza in their keg of ranch. Ugh. What's happening to America? Anyway, let's get to the other headlines. The headlines we don't talk about as much. The empty news headlines with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. The empty news team. First on the scene. Fifth on facts. I think we've got time for this one. Uh, it involves Shik Shumway. Oh, I love Shik. Yeah. How's he doing? Well, we'll get to him here in a second. Uh, what's the most precarious situation you've ever been stuck in? Or what's the, what's the most difficult to get out of situation you've ever been stuck in? Like, uh, well, I mean, I've Physically. been... Physically. Okay, I've been stuck at LAX airport after 9-11... Okay. And had to somehow get home to Utah without an airplane or a rental car. Hmm. So I took a bus. And it was the longest 20-something hours of my life. We've all got those stories. Did you sit next to an exotic dancer? Um, Okay, well, you didn't. So I did, (laughs) and it was traumatic. Well, we went on a flight. Well... After being going to the wrong airport, my dad had to turn us around and go to a different airport. We missed our flight, so we had to have this huge layover. 
Our bag got separated from oh, us. Boy. We had a baby at the time, oh, so boy. we didn't have any of the diapers. So we had to take a cab to the mall. So we had to spend like forty dollars on a cab just to get diapers. Oh, brother. and uh, yeah, yeah, that was the bad. baby cried on all the way home on the plane. Is that you or your baby? I was crying inside, for sure. So authorities say a Utah man who was hiding from police and fled uh, a fled arrest had to call 911 to be rescued after getting stuck in his hiding spot. Uh oh. Salt Lake City police say 46 year old Shane Paul Owen called dispatchers for help on Tuesday, more than six hours after he accidentally locked himself in a church's boiler room. <laughs> Officers were looking for Owens on Monday because he is a suspect in a string of burglaries and had warrants out for his arrest. Police say an officer spotted him and attempted to pull his vehicle over, but Owen fled, got out of his car, and ran oh, into the church. Boy. A SWAT team held a standoff at the church until Owens called to be rescued. <laughs> so, you know Schick. He's always yeah. the first on the scene. Yeah. Uh, even before police sometimes. That's what's which, amazing about him. Which is the case here. He was actually able to get an interview in with this guy really, stuck in the, the boiler room before the cops even got cool. there. Sir, can you tell us how you got into this mess? Veterans Day is coming up this Saturday, folks, and as we remember the sacrifices that have been made in the name of freedom, we we like to think that we are there for and support those who have fought for our country. But as Americans, how supportive of our veterans are we really? Uh, here to discuss this with us is Dr. Mike Haney. He's the founder or the founding executive director of Syracuse University's Institute for Veterans and Military Families. It's the nation's first interdisciplinary academic institute focused purposefully on informing and impacting the policy, economic and wellness, as well as social concerns of our nation's veterans and their families. And uh, he's got a lot to teach us today. Dr. Mike Haney, thank you so much for being with us. I'm thrilled to be here. This is this is honestly to me a sacred topic and I don't think we do it justice here and I watched your uh, TED Talk and was incredibly moved by just some of the basic questions that you ask. Do just as an expert who researches it, who studies it, how do you feel? What grade maybe would you give us as Americans on 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 how supportive we are of our veterans? Well, that, that's uh, first question put me right on the spot. You know, I, I would I would answer the question in two ways. I, I think at a um, at, at maybe a, a superficial level, I'd 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 say we're in an A minus. Uh, but truth be told, um, you know, I think the extent to which Americans um, meaningfully and deeply are invested in the the post-service lives of our nation's veterans and their families, um, you know, I'd, I'd probably put that at a C. Hmm. And, and I say that because one of the things that we don't talk enough about, I think, today is that, you know, the fact that we've been at war for the better part of the last 15 years, um, and, and that, that those are wars that have been largely 
fought by um, a, an all-volunteer military. And, and this is something new in our history. Um, this, this conflict is the first conflict that the, bo- the burden has been shouldered by um, a, a military force of volunteers. And that naturally disconnects the costs and consequences of war from the majority of our citizens. And um, it, it's, not, it's not necessarily a function of, of um, some intentional decision on, on the part of um, those who aren't military connected, but it does create um, a dimension of, of social isolation and social disconnectedness from uh, among those who have served when they come home. Mm. So, so because I think a lot of people, and I'm sure you think have thought this that at some point that you know, boy, it's good because these are people that want to be in the military. This is their passion, their love. They go after it. They chase it. But what you're saying is because we can because we can have a volunteer military, there's other consequences that happen, which are we don't. We don't maybe even know people that are in the military. We don't. Can, our brother isn't at risk of going to have going to join the military. So it actually it just moves us away from the real consequences. Sure, and you you touch on your question touches on really two issues there. One, um, I I think because and I'll use that phrase again because one of the consequences of an all volunteer military is to largely disconnect the consequences of, of war from your average American. Um, from a, from a, a policy perspective, it actually makes it, in, in my estimation, far too easy to leverage military force hmm. as an instrument of policy because, um, you know, the folks that make those decisions are not the military. They're, they're politicians, and, and when their constituencies um, are not largely impacted by using military force. It, it makes it, I think, a little easier to, um, to allow military force to be leveraged as an instrument of policy. But the other, the other consequence um, goes back to this, this idea of, of social isolation and disconnectedness among those who have served. And you know, for example, we see this play out on college campuses all the time. You know, when you 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 look at a, a, a student population of you know 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, and among that group there might be um, 100, 200, maybe that have worn a uniform, um, particularly during a time of war. It, it it creates an environment where they look to their left, they look to their right, and there's there's nobody that mm. has that shared experience. Yeah, and uh, it it it's it's difficult. And then this isolationism, or and just being isolated and not having a peer uh, that that's there with you, um, I, I guess too, that might be leading to other problems that we're hearing and seeing suicide rates, um, and just I, I mean, I guess just just people falling off the map, veterans that are just disappearing. Yeah, sure, and and uh, you know all of the research that um, that we've done here at the Institute for Veterans and Military Families, and that you know has been has been performed by others looking at um, this, this this set of issues, the 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 cultural, social, economic concerns of this generation of veterans. You know, one of the one of the 
um, strong antecedents. One of the, the, the things that comes up over and over again in that research is um, th- this idea of social disconnectedness, social isolation. Um, you know, if you, you watch my TED talk, you know, you heard me tell the story of a, you know, a young veteran that, you know, I had a chance encounter with on an airplane who, um, you know, rattled off a, a host of challenges that he has faced since he's been home. But, um, you know, the, the thing that he describes as, as most challenging, most troubling um, is now that, now that he is home, he feels anonymous among the very people that sent him off to war. And mm. I, I think um, that is a, um, that, 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 that anonymity, that, that isolation um, is something new to this country. If you think about our, um, you know, our, our history, um, even through Vietnam, you, you, we had a, a conscription, a draft uh, model of military service where, you know, a, a large percentage of Americans shouldered the burden of our of our military conflicts. That's not true today. Right. Uh, so, when our service members come home um, and and transition to civilian life, it, it's very very often um, they whether it's in the workplace, on a college campus, um, et cetera, you know, in their neighborhoods, there are, there are not many. Um, people that that they can look to and say, you know, this this is this is my peer. This is someone who has that that same shared experience. Yeah, and I, and then we we kind of say, well, yeah, but you don't need that because you you know we're paying for your education <laughs> or we're there's some other benefit. You you got paid to go do it, but the reality is there's something there's no honor. There's no. I, I think a lot of us would. Um, and they're not in uniform, and you can't like when a when a soldier gets on an airplane, and you can see him, you can thank him and appreciate him. But when they come home and they take their uniforms off and they just get they fall back into uh, the regular world, there is this anonymity, and and there's this. It just seems like they're lost, they're gone. Yeah, yeah, and and I think again, um, your your question your question hits on a on a on a couple couple issues there and and you know one i i um i have heard um from folks before that that equate the all-volunteer military to you know making any other vocational choice that right. someone would, would make right. whether that you know to be a, a teacher or a plumber air or conditioner a, yeah yeah fixing uh, air conditioners you know i i i do have to i push back on that um on that uh, comparison, because what we're talking about here is someone who volunteered um, to be sent off to um, to to fight mm. and to wage war on on behalf of. I, I guess what I'm saying is, um, when when someone volunteers for military service, they are volunteering to to shoulder the burden of a of a society's most morally troubling endeavor, and that is. Um, to to go off to war, and I think we have a different level of responsibility um, to those folks, given that um, as a society we are conferring to them that um, that that moral choice, and and, and I think that's different than yeah. um, volunteering for um, to you know again to be a to be a, a school teacher or a plumber or a mechanic. Um, and you know that that also though 
you know, speaks to, um, speaks to coming home and um, the extent to which we're able to support and empower um, those who have volunteered when they take that uniform off, um, I think is, I believe, is, is part of our moral obligation. Mm. How and I have a friend that flew Apaches in um, Iraq, two or three tours. An Apache is a really bad instrument. He got really good at saving a lot of lives and doing a lot of stuff. High adrenaline, highly trained, comes home, can't find a job. Especially, you, there's no jobs as an Apache helicopter pilot in the mm-hmm. United States, right? So he he couldn't even get a helicopter pilot job, and then needs to somehow, I guess, what, get another job? It's just, it's got to be, and and then like you're saying, the anonymity of it all. Like nobody knows. It's easy to fall into depression, plus any PTSD, other related issues. How do we help them, Mike? How do we, what can we do to actually bring them to be more connected to them and, and, and eliminate the social isolation? Yeah. So on on the job front, you know, I, I will say I, I give actually um, great credit to the nation's employer community for over the course of the last 10 years for really um, stepping up and, and taking this issue on. There are um, large coalitions of, of, of employers um, that, have, that have stepped up, collaborated, worked together um, to it to address the unemployment challenges facing this generation of veterans. And I think the last statistics I saw on the unemployment front, um, the unemployment rate among the nation's veterans is actually at its lowest point. Oh, great. um, Yeah. The last 15 years. As a matter of fact, I think it's lower than the unemployment rate for all Americans. And that, um, for for folks who have not followed that challenge, you know, I, I can say seven years ago the unemployment rate for this generation of veterans was over 20%. Oh, wow. So there has been a real sea change on, on, the, on the employment front. Um, but that's only, you know, as you mentioned, it's only part of the puzzle. Yeah. Um, you know, on the, on the education side, I think this is where we have uh, an awful lot of work to do. You know, this generation of veterans, you know, probably about 70%, you talk about volunteering for service, um, about 70% of, of the post-9-11 generation of veterans who did volunteer for service indicate that they did so in large part for the opportunity to go to college, you know, the opportunity to leverage the, the post-9-11 GI Bill to get an education after service. Um, here's where we have more work to do. If you look at, um, you know, the, the extent to which traditional colleges and universities, and I'm, I'm talking about um, you know, the traditional non, non-profit residency colleges and universities, the extent to which they're, um, they have stepped up in the same way as the employer community has, I, I would argue they haven't. Um, if, you, if you look at the data, there are, um, there, there are only small pockets of, of post-9-11 veterans ten, attending you know the this nation's mm. best colleges and universities, yeah. and, it, and it's not because they don't have the the, the credentials, the, credentials yeah. uh, the the work ethic to succeed there. It's because um, they don't largely uh, when you when you when you ask them the question, they don't feel like um, 
they'd be welcome there hmm. at those universities. They don't feel like they'd fit in. Um, and, and we have to change that. Uh, you know, I think uh, when you look back after World War II, um, you know, the, the original GI Bill afforded the millions and millions of returning World War II veterans the opportunity to pursue an education. And really it was that, that, that opportunity that, that kicked off the Industrial Revolution, the post-World War II Industrial Revolution in this country. You know, 600,000 engineers, 400,000 doctors, um, all in, in, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners, presidents, uh, all empowered as a consequence of the education they received made possible by the original GI Bill. We have that opportunity again for this generation of veterans, but the nation's colleges and universities um, need, to, need to step up and um, take on the challenge of, of creating... Um, pathways for this generation of veterans to um, uh, succeed in a, the traditional college university environment. Mm, I, I totally agree. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Mike Haney, and Mike is the founding executive director of Syracuse University's Institute for Veterans and Military Families. As uh, again, as we're as we are preparing for Veterans Day coming up this Saturday, we've got to figure out a way to to decrease the social isolation and the disconnectedness that so many veterans feel as they return back from um, from their service and just kind of get reabsorbed into the country or, or not absorbed. Um, what else can we do? What else can I be teaching my kids about military service? I mean, when I heard your idea of like the idea of reinstituting the draft so that everybody could feel an equal connection, almost fear, almost obligation. Um, it does make sense. Uh, but I also remember growing up thinking that the draft was coming and being terrified by it. How do we how do we get our kids to really connect into these veterans if, like you say, too, they're not in our world? They're, they're, they're not from my my neighborhood, my church, my community. Well, you know, that that's um, but they're out there somewhere. They are. I, yeah. I think the answer. To you, I think the answer to your question is, um, you know, to go find them. And and there are ways in every community around the country. There are community um, community connected organizations that, in in one part or another of what they do, um, they they serve veterans. And the extent to which, you know. Um, Families that are otherwise disconnected from this community um, can engage in those community organizations um, to to really get to know who our veterans are. Um, you know, same thing is true of college campuses. There are um, you know Student Veteran of America chapters, for example, on college campuses. I, I think where I'm going with this is um, again similar to. The, the message I concluded with on the on the TED walk TED talk is um, really I think the first step is is to to get to know who our veterans are you know to take the opportunity um, to to somehow engage with veterans and you know whether it whether we're talking about generations from you know generations of of veterans uh, that that represent the the post 9/11 community or the post Vietnam community or you know, the, the really getting to know who they are and beginning to understand the service experience mm-hmm. and how the service experience then has implications for the, um, the, the post-service experience. 
Um, because I, I think at the end of the day, that's, um, that's, that's where we can do the, the most good. You know, I'll, I'll give you a, uh, an example um, here from upstate New York. We had a, a local elementary school um, decided that they were going to um, help their, their students um, uh, understand who veterans are on Veterans Day, and they, they gave an assignment to the students you know, these third and fourth graders, I think, to, to find a, a veteran in their family and, and interview them. Hmm. Well, it turns out that um, there was a large percentage of those students who had nobody to interview because they, they, you know, even in their extended family, there was nobody, had been nobody that served. So they reached out to us here and, uh, at the Institute, and, and we um, connected all those third and fourth graders with, with veterans in this community that were not necessarily family members, but those third and fourth graders um, spent time with those veterans, interviewed them about their service experience, and, and I think tomorrow I'm heading over to that elementary school to listen to these students talk about what they learned. And I think that's a great, very tangible example of, of how um, you can bridge what has become this, this divide between the um, civilian and, and veteran community. I totally agree. Dr. Mike Haney, beautiful uh, insights, I think, for all of us. We, we do. We just need to be more proactive. Go find them. And, uh, and, and I've seen it with my own kids and literally introduce them to some of these people that are not just heroes, but also just regular Joes, right, that, that have gone out and um, served. It, it is. It's a job above every other job. Um, if you're willing to go put your life on the line for all of us. We appreciate Dr. Mike Haney and his great work there as the Executive Director of Syracuse University's Institute for Veterans and Military Families. Uh, up next, we're going to do a little Coach's Corner on how we all could step up a little bit more and, um, and really use our brains, use our own human gifts to better understand those around us. you boy you too stupid to do what your coach tells you because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner play ball play ball welcome back friends you know okay so when somebody says to you that they're going to that they think that you should reinstate the draft and you're a parent you're a father you're a mother what goes through your mind does it terrify you ah! yeah it probably should, right? I mean, it's a scary, scary idea. But if if there was a draft and, um, you know, somebody in every one of your uh, close friend groups, one 18, 19-year-old boy or girl would uh, be enlisted or three, let's say, out of all of your kids' friends were enlisted into the military or if everybody had to serve – for uh, you know, three months, or go to a basic training, and then a draft or whatever. Um, how would that alter your thoughts about military service? If if one of your you know, when your kids are graduating from high school, and you hear, yeah, where are you going? Well, I'm going to go to this university. I'm going to this university. Um, I'm going on an LDS mission somewhere. And then one person says, yeah, I'm going to join the military. Do, what do you think about that choice? Do you think, oh, well, that's – he could do – he really could do so much more than serve in the military? Or do you actually revere that choice? 
everybody has an opinion, right? And I wonder if uh, one of the reasons why we don't seem to be maybe um, appreciating our veterans as much is because, like our guest said, it, they're not – it's not – the military may not be part of your world anymore. You don't have to – you know, that the military is for the guys that like guns, the people that just like guns and kind of middle America people. The the problem is um, the world is is not necessarily a safe place. We have a lot of politicians making a lot of big decisions, and um, they're probably being uh, made by a certain bias, pro-military, against military. And think about the Democrats and Republicans. We just had an election last night, and how many of those people today are have served in the military? Fewer and fewer of our leaders have actually been in the military, and yet they're making the biggest decisions of the of our lives about military activity, going to war, threatening going to war, using military force. So one of the things that we can all do as human beings is – and this is a unique gift I think to us as humans – is we actually can project. We can, we can actually – understand, feel empathy, feel compassion. We can go and even learn more about experiences that we're not even familiar with and actually be influenced by those experiences. I watched Band of Brothers and it shook me to the core. And then I watched a similar documentary on what happened in the Pacific and it shook me even worse to think about what these people were willing to do for our lives. And that wasn't even in it. Then I sat down with a veteran friend of mine. He's been on the radio show. We, In fact, we'll probably uh, – I'm going to try to see if we can't play, play some of his clips of his interview. And when I realized the sacrifices he made in Vietnam, it floors me. So I sit down with my kids and I'm doing everything I can to get in their head that sacrifice that people make. Um, I've said it on the show a lot. Uh, I appreciate all your opinions. Everybody's got one, but um, – there's something different about somebody that's willing to put their, you know, their money where their mouth is or their life where their mouth is. And so somehow we've got to get these veterans to the front of the line. And uh, I think recognizing more of them, understanding more, sitting down and listening to them. And then if not, start actually asking yourself, how would we make different policy decisions? Would you vote differently if there was a draft and your children could be sent to war because of the draft, would you choose a different leader? And what kind of leader would you choose? And what would be different about them? Just stuff we've got to be thinking about, folks. We're, I think a lot of us, we're just too much on autopilot when it comes to our political choices. And um, But there's something special about these people that are willing to step forward and put their lives in jeopardy for you. And let's let's do what we can this weekend to take care of them. It is Veterans Day this Saturday. We'll continue the journey up next. We're going to uh, have McKenna Baus in the house and talk about why spiders scare us. It, you're not trained that way. There's something innate about it. That's straight ahead. It's the House of Baus. Welcome back, folks. It's the House of Baus. Which means it's McKenna Baus's turn to come in and enlighten us. She likes to blow our minds with the latest research, the greatest uh, new discoveries that are happening out there. One thing we can do now is rest easy. If spiders freak you out, if snakes make you cringe, it's just nature. Yep, you're pretty normal. So mom didn't make me 
you know, freak out just because there's a spider because my mom freaks out. Every mom, every dad, uh, every human has this weird aversion. Yeah. Uh, for me personally, spiders are the, the scariest thing out there. I really hate spiders. Always have. Um, and for a long time, people have wondered if, you know, people who hate spiders like me. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot of us. Maybe you had a bad experience. Yeah. You know, is it something that we've learned? Is it you're taught it because yeah. spiders are always portrayed as this creepy, gross thing. Um, and so some researchers in Europe, they did the study where they took a bunch of babies, six months olds, and they showed them um, different pictures of flowers and fish yeah. and spiders and snakes. Uh-huh. And, you know, babies, they show fear differently yeah. than, um, you know, regular folk. They don't necessarily scream the same way that we would when we're scared. Um, one of the biggest ways you can tell if a baby is scared is pupil- pupils dilate yeah. big time. And their pupils only dilated in response to the spiders and the snakes. Really? Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that they know that this isn't necessarily something that's taught is because you know, you're doing this with babies who haven't necessarily been exposed to this. Yeah. You know, babies that aren't growing up in, you know, third world areas where there's lots of big, you know, animals that you're going to be coming into contact with, yeah. you know, yeah. more frequently. Or even just, you know, babies who are from maybe more tropical areas that are fully developed where bugs show up. <laughs> Um, and so this is something, first real exposure, they're still showing extreme signs of fear. Interesting. And so snakes and uh, snakes and spiders, but not necessarily like a monkey. Yeah, no. Um, it's – a lot of it has to do with these things that we traditionally think are sort of – And so, it's, so I guess it's like it's genetic. It's evolutionary. We've had this – We've kind of over years and years and years, we have this reaction to them. Yeah, we've learned to fear these venomous creatures, mm. and it is it is in our gut. That's kind of nice to know. Yeah. Now, by the way, so so let's just say if I drop a mice, uh, I mean a mouse down your, uh, your sweatshirt, and would that creep you out? Me personally? I Little mean- Little mice feet just grabbing on your neck- Mice themselves don't scare me too much. Yeah. It's it's mostly the spiders. It's, they have too many legs. They move weird. Yeah, but you can just smash them. I don't want to get close enough to have to do that. That's Shoot. me standing in the other corner of the room, you know, calling, hey, come come get it. It's, that's, that's, that's actually good. So if somebody's freaking out, then it's just they have a really nice, healthy reaction. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this is, you know, we just finished up Halloween. Yeah. A lot of people assume young children, babies, they don't really necessarily get yeah, all the spooky they don't get things. All so this... for putting all the spiders around and snakes yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Heads up, you might be terrifying your six month yeah. old. You might be creating a lot of bills later with the doctor. Yep. A lot of stress. McKenna Baus is her name. Good to know. Uh, you should be afraid of spiders and snakes. It's natural. It's not, it's not something your parents did to you. Unless, of course, your parents did make it worse by giving you spiders and snakes and surprising you. And... <laughs> Great stuff. McKenna Baus is her name. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. It's the House of Baus. 